Welcome to School of Movies. <laughs> the Stanley Kubrick season. The Shining. Meet Jack Torrance. I'm outlining a new writing project. He's a writer looking for inspiration. Lots of ideas. Nah, I'm kidding. Could you imagine, though? I don't suppose they uh, told you anything in Denver about the tragedy we had up here during the winter of 1970. I hired a man named Charles Grady as the winter caretaker. From what I've been told, I mean, he seemed like a completely normal individual. But at some point during the winter, he must have suffered some kind of a complete mental breakdown. He ran amok and uh, killed his family with an axe. Well, you can rest assured, Mr. Ullman, that's not going to happen with me. <laughs> that's right. Mom? Do you really want to go and live in that hotel for the winter? Sure I do. It'll be lots of fun. The only thing that can get a bit trying up here during the winter is uh, the tremendous sense of isolation. Is there something bad here? I fear you will have to deal with this matter in the harshest possible way. This is the centerpiece of our Stanley Kubrick season. In fact, we were originally only going to cover this one film. But all the research led to us watching and then talking about a quartet from his back catalogue. The Shining is probably the most popular and beloved of his works, with 2001 on balance being the most critically celebrated and influential in hindsight. Probably. Our, you'd have to measure it on an influenceometer. Because mm. it's, it's close with The Shining, because this is venerated. Our angle as Dr. Sleep released, was originally going to be to contrast The Shining with Stephen King's original 1977 novel, which I had never read, and now have, along with Dr. Sleep. Or, more accurately, Sharon read both of them to me, back to back. Then we had the fortune to be able to take in Kubrick's Shining at our local Odeon Cinema last night. Although, before then, I acquired the 2019 4K version, which we also watched. In other words, we pulled out all the stops and really dove in deep on this one. So we're going to hold back all talk of Dr. Sleep for a companion show, but that original plan of comparing the source novel and film adaptation, much like It and Pet Cemetery, does give us a meaty discussion to get our teeth into. I've seen cinephiles dismiss any criticism of Kubrick's Shining with a hand wave towards, mm, you're just pissed off that it wasn't like the book. Well, I saw The Shining age 12 and didn't absorb the book until just now, and while my views on the story in general have shifted, I can honestly say, hand on heart, that neither of them appeals to me personally the way that it does in both book and film form. But also knowing more about the backstory and Kubrick and King in general definitely helps The Shining gain gravity in my mind for both versions. This is a gothic horror that has been meticulously crafted. Stanley has been described as a gifted chess player fused with a gifted photographer, and that principle of being able to think many steps ahead, visualizing the scene in the edit long before it's been shot, is what allows all of these pieces to slot into place to make the film that so many people adore. It's a focused, deliberate, baleful, menacing picture. Although the fact that he took so long over it suggests he was kind of sure when he saw it happen, but just kind of circling the airport for a lot of the scenes. That would be where the repetition comes in. He's like, right, I've just got to just steer it and nudge it and push it and push it and push it until the thing that I want to happen happens. 
which led to certain actors, including Scatman Crothers, going, what do you want, Stanley? Exactly. And I think this is, for me, this is where his let's do between 80 and 100 takes of things. That falls down as a theory on this is how you get the exact shot that you want. Because by the time you've got up to take 68, how do you even know what you wanted anymore? I think he simply approached it with his 200 IQ of, I'll know it when I see it. Mm. And he just wasn't seeing it in takes one through 67. Yeah. But also he didn't, and this is what came up with, with Crothers, was that he didn't outline to the actors what it was he wanted them to be working towards. Which is direction. Exactly. So they are literally fishing around in the dark He'll know what it is when he sees it, but how are they supposed to know what they're trying to aim at? Hmm. But surprisingly, this film never scared me, and I always wondered why it affected everyone else so much. That was until last year when I sat down Lyra to watch it, prior to her seeing Ready Player One, so that that scene would have maximum impact. I expected her to, as the 11-year-old boy in that Spielberg movie said, have to watch it through her fingers. Instead, she sat, staring with rapt attention, and reported at the end that it was okay, creepy enough, that she had a problem with the mum being such a wet blanket, but she wasn't scared. This was exactly how I felt, and the spookiest thing was how close our take-homes were. I realised as Sharon read the book just how much of the backstory of the Overlook was missing from the film, intentionally. I didn't necessarily wish it was in there. If anything, it made the hotel seem a bit more humdrum, less mysterious, less malevolent, not the same measure of silent, watching, inhuman eyes. But it made me realise what Stanley had substituted, and that was mood and dwelling. By which I mean, he found shots that were creepy and unnerving, and he held them. And held them. And held them. Deliberately ratcheting tension by refusing to move on or move away. And as a result, cultivating an intensity that is kind of absent from the book. It was a familiar technique to me. He used it on Leonard and the dying sniper in Full Metal Jacket. He used it throughout Clockwork Orange. And he used it in 2001. It's a two-step process, hold and intensity, and it's hellishly effective, though sometimes it loses its power if you think about the manipulation of our emotions and the nudging us, not even emotions, just like basic primal instincts to escape from the thing that's creeping us out, and nudging us towards existential dread that this entails. It's a more technical, visual version of James Cameron deliberately prodding us towards weeping melancholy with emotional James Horner music in Titanic and Avatar, or of Edgar Wright's masterful quick edits to establish character action in very little time, something he admits he pinched from Guy Ritchie. The thing is, these long-held shots and intensity got Lyra's attention and respectful silence, but it didn't frighten her, and I found that odd, since this story is about a little boy who might be murdered by his suddenly crazed father, while his mother is powerless to prevent this or her own murder. This should by all rights be every child's very worst nightmare. But I can't dispute or argue against the film's effectiveness upon everybody except the Shaw family. It is renowned as one of the most respected, terrifying horror movies of all time. A masterpiece and a classic. So we're going to look beyond the holding and intensity and explore the overlook. 
We watched the documentary Room 237 a few years ago and didn't need to revisit that because most of the interviewees ranting about secret hidden messages that Kubrick had laid out for us to find were unwitting subjects for a film all about conspiracy nuts. Though there were a few ideas that held weight and we may touch on a few of them tonight. First of all, let us set the two parallel stages for everyone to examine the difference between the book and the film. What did King's texts have that Kubrick omitted? And then we'll switch to the other stage. Okay, so in the book only, had you had read the original book, hadn't you, a while back? I had, yeah, and um, it was... Like a lot of King's books and a lot of the horror that I read when I was in my teens, it's reading it through again, and I haven't gone back to it for a long, long time, it was really intriguing to see how much of my uh, internalised fear framework was based on this. Mm. Like, there's, I'm, I won't go into details, but there are various just little moments that are littered throughout this book that have been for me like images that my brain would go to when certain fears mm. were triggered anxiety trips yeah little basically he set up little time bombs or proximity mines inside mm. your anxiety matrix and then when something triggers them it just makes you go yeah and then you get that horrible fear in your head exactly and the book actually, not the film right the book not the film although i think the film may have enhanced it however mm. when we talk about the various different edits which i think we're going to do briefly it's worth noting that the only version i'd seen was the what i'm assuming was the european theatrical edition mm. um which is missing substantial chunks stuff. of yeah. of narratively important stuff but did Camo dismiss that with a hand wave and said, "Oh, he put thirty minutes back in, and it's just you know you might or might not." I don't like know. That. I can't remember what he said about it. But but the bits he took out were highly relevant. The longer version is better. Yes, absolutely. But it was fascinatingly therapeutic for me to go back to it, and particularly since we then went on to Doctor Sleep, and we'll talk more about why that was when we do the Doctor Sleep podcast. Mm. But to be able to go. Oh shit! That's why that's imi- that image is in my head. That's where that comes from. Oh, okay. Well, in that case, I don't have to worry about that one anymore because there was always this kind of nagging. Well, where did that come from? Has that happened to me? Was have it a I... dark repressed memory from your past? Exactly. Have I heard about that happening to somebody in particular and had this kind of uh, empathic trauma logged in my brain for that reason? And I and. It was, there were enough of them, probably between half a dozen and a dozen, which might not seem like much, but significant images that I have now been able to go, that is no longer relevant to me because I know it came out of a book that I read when I was 14. Mm. So from that perspective, this was a really successful enterprise for me. So thank you. So in the book, the Torrance family, we get a lot more of their life prior to the uh, Overlook. Mm-hmm. And we get a lot more of what effectively was a situation where they had their options cut away from them yes. until all they could do was go to the Overlook. Absolutely. And it almost feels like 
They're being herded, mm. which is, it is by fate. That, exactly. The way that Naomi Watts in Peter Jackson's King Kong seems like she's being shunted slowly towards yes. that boat so she can get on and fate can continue its path. Absolutely. And that is a theme <clears throat> that King, I think, explores quite a bit, actually. It's much more prominent in it, mm. but it starts even here. And The Shining was one of his earliest books. Well, you said uh, that well, a lot of the horror from King is setting up an obviously terrible scenario that's going to happen, like a, a sort of Damocles hanging, mm. and then the rest of the book is about the protagonists being unable to prevent that terrible Indeed, thing happening. Which is irritating for me to read because I'm very much a person of action. It's not exactly inevitability, but it is the inaction, either by choice or inability, mm. of various characters to prevent something from dropping off a cliff. And that is symbolised in the film. The There's three premonitions of the blood tide pouring out of the elevator. So Danny sees it three times, and then in the finale, Wendy sees it. But again, it's symbolic. Danny's getting a premonition of a horrific image that symbolises what has happened, what will happen, what will always happen. So it almost would have been more powerful if Wendy hadn't then seen it. For us, at least. Obviously, with everyone else, maximum power. And it could just be its classic status, or it could just be that it was leaned on a few too many times in the film for it to have an impact this time. Or it could just be that Ready Player One annoyingly commodified it into cheap throwaway pop culture. And we're talking one of the most spectacular, memorable moments in cinema. Which is frequently nicked for other things. Yes, but including by Paul W.S. Anderson, who was like, yeah, and we nicked that bit from The Shining and stuck it in our movie. But Do you know what it meant, Paul? Know what it meant going in. Or maybe See he our did. event horizon show. He didn't. That's not what he didn't. talking about. He wasn't thinking. But no, you know, the fact that she then sees those ridiculous corpses all set mm. up in the lobby, does that mean <laughs> that they were just um, her picking up on some um, uh, deep-seated emotional... That's when it goes full-on spook house. It really does. Didn't they establish that that wasn't in the original version? The bit with the skeletons, no. Yeah. It was not in the, uh, the edited-down version. That's a bad scene. We'll talk about that later. Indeed. Okay. The book. Uh, we get their background and their friends. Yeah. Jack, there's a lot more of Jack trying to be a successful man in the eyes of his friends, his editor. He's a teacher and he ends up beating a student up because the student accuses him of kicking him out of the debate team. He, yeah, of rigging his yeah. debate Test because so he has a stutter. It's a whole complicated situation, but either way, Jack is violent and uh, gets fired from his teaching job, as you should if you beat up a student. Indeed, yeah. But the the fundamental difference for me between book and film that I'm not keen on is the differences between the portrayal of Jack and King didn't like them either hmm. I don't think there was ever really any intention that, that Jack should be a sympathetic figure and we will talk about why that might be later but there is an ambiguity in the book that is not there in the film Now Nicholson starts off pissed off with everyone Absolutely There's also, because he's been fired from his teaching position They've got nothing to go home to. They basically lose their apartment and someone else, a friend of his, sets up this job at the Overlook with the idea being, go to the Overlook, you write your novel, you know, hibernate for the winter, and then when you come back in the spring, I'll see if I can set you up a new job and we'll get you somewhere new to live. This is the end of the line to them. This is a, a, a cul-de-sac. They're going in there. 
they have to be able to get through this. There is no real sense that they could just abandon their post and go somewhere else. Or if they did, they have got nothing. It's, Absolutely nothing. There's also quite a lot of money worries. It's supposed to be a holding pattern. It's yeah. supposed to be a respite. A place where they can have somewhere to live, all their survival needs met. Mm. They will be, yes, they will be cut off from the rest of the world by the storm. And ultimately, that's kind of, it It symbolises them being cut off from their life so far by Jack's actions. Mm. Now, it's feasible you could have gotten an elegant version of that into the film that implies they've got no other choice than this, which ratchets up the tension. You don't necessarily, like, the way Kubrick works, he just sheared out all the stuff that he considered extraneous. And in, a, in many ways, he's right, because it really focuses the story. But when you read the book, you're like, oh, so that was why they had to stay. So you kind of you can still read it into his version of things, mm. um, but there are just some times when it straight up contradicts it's, what was in the book. Yeah, it's, it's not, not there, but it's... I would say that similarly to the European theatrical cut of the movie where those scenes that were taken out were removed, the fact that it's not there means that you don't get that implication if this is the only version of the story you know. There's a daft scene involving a wasp's nest where he finds some wasps, gasses them, and then goes, here, Danny, do you want this wasp's nest? It's perfectly safe. And Danny's like, yeah, Pa, I'll keep it in my room. And then... Turns out that the wasps sting the living shit out of Danny. It's like, oh, who could possibly have predicted this? I don't know. Anyone. Mm. But that time... And he's, he's, all, he's, all, he's trying to sue the bug bomb people. And it's like, this isn't going to work, Jack. No. They go into Sidewinder a few times. Yeah. The that, uh, nearby town. The wasp's nest ties in with the, uh, the theme of recurring generational yeah. patterns. Yeah. Okay. Recurring generational patterns and harm that you thought was gone is in fact dormant is definitely a theme. Yeah. There's also vicious topiary. Mm-hmm. There's there's hedge animals. Yeah. There in the in the book there is no maze. But there are but like there are bush hedge lions. animals. There's uh, lions. Tigers. And, tigers and bears. I might no. Uh, there's uh, three lions. A dog. And a rabbit, I think. They're defenders of the Overlook. So Basically, yeah. They really only come into play when Dick Halloran comes back to try and save the day. They fuck him up. Mm. Yeah. Like, they, he's oh, weakened just... before he goes into the hotel because he's, he's been savaged by a shrubbery. Yeah. They... <laughs> we demand a shrubbery. Uh, they chase Danny at one point All as right. well. But the, the point being that they, they do this whole thing where they move when you're not looking at them. So it's that, it's that same tension that's ratcheted up in something like the Blink, Blink episode of Doctor Who. Brilliant. It's they, the, the movement and the threat that is there, and you know it's there, but when you look directly at it, you can't tell mm. what the threat is. And that makes something all the more sinister because you can't identify the threat and therefore you can't act on it. Yeah, there, I noted down that there's a much more complex internal life for Wendy, Jack and Danny. Mm. Danny in particular, because a lot of the story is from his perspective. Mm. You're basically getting The Shining from the point of view of a five-year-old boy who loves his dad and is confused. Mm. And he's a smart, smart kid. And unfortunately, the young actor they got to play this, Danny Lloyd, cannot convey that. And Kubrick had no particular interest in conveying that Danny was a smart, smart, intuitive kid until the very end Mm -hmm. when he behaves like someone with a 200 IQ. 
And that is something that I, that's a scene I love taken in isolation, but it makes him, it makes Danny seem very detached from the Danny that we've seen so far. Yeah, who is is very detached. Mostly unresponsive and unable to take action in any given situation. A cute little defenceless moppet who's not really thinking about much. Mm, A a lot of people love and praise the, uh, uh, the, the young actor playing Danny, whose name was Danny. And I think we've had so many actors who have been capable of pulling off really intense child roles. You know, like Lee Phoenix in Parenthood, Haley Joel Osment in The Sixth Sense, Alakina Mann in The Others, Daniel Radcliffe and Emma Watson in Harry Potter, Georgie Henley in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, Dakota Fanning in Man on Fire, Bill Milner and Will Poulter in Son of Rambo, Chloe Grace Moretz in Kick-Ass, Sophia Lillis in It, Finn Wolfhard in It and Stranger Things, Millie Bobby Brown in Stranger Things, Ivana Baquero in Pan's Labyrinth, Jack Dylan Grazer in It and Shazam, Zoe Margaret Coletti in Michael Garza in Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, Daphne Keane in Logan and his Dark Materials. Yes, we've been watching it, and yes, there's a show coming soon. Basically, the bar for child performances has been raised and raised and raised over the past 40 years. Like He was too young for a start. He King was. wrote him too young. He did. He should have been older, and they could have had a... like it, A version of The Shining that I would really like would be one with a kid who is switched on. And that's something... Um, and I, I've discussed this with you before. I can't remember whether it's overlapped with any of the podcasts we've done, but there is an age wherein kids grasp and are able to convey their grasping yeah. of the world. And that hits around about eight, nine years old. Sometimes it can be as young as seven, sometimes it's a little bit older, yeah. but you are not going to get that that comprehension mm. in an, a child actor who is younger than that. Which is why King wrote him so young that Danny is extraordinary. Mm. When, when Lyra went to school in um, all of those years, all the way up to where she is now, every time I came to pick her up, the kids that I'd see were just these oblivious cross-eyed little moppets charging around with their heads on backwards, just completely blind to the rest of the world. Mm. That is standard for kids. And, and, I mean, Lyra was to to some extent when she was sort of five, six years old. It's not, like I say, I I can't really say what what their comprehension level is, and that will vary per child. But the the ability that they have to express that comprehension Mm. is severely... Um, it's not limited because it's it's normal for that age, but they haven't developed it yet. Yeah, there's a lot of talk of Wendy's tits. It's oh, it's 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 worse when you're having the book read aloud to you mm. by someone who similarly <laughs> who rolls her eyes every time she comes across the word breasts. But the, if you <laughs> the word breasts turns up thirty times in this book, a lot of them are concentrated in the sex scene, which mm. which is it. Yeah, completely, I, I, perfectly you know natural. What? I was going to say that's fair, but no, this scene covers in the Kindle version maybe four or five pages, and just and she breasts breastily. There's other words that you could use, Steve. Just. But he uses like the, he uses the breasts to in a, in a maternal way when she's hugging Danny and Danny like nuzzled her breasts, and then there's a lot of breasty talk when it comes to that woman in two three seven who. That 237 scene is not in the book. No. It's, it takes place in a different scenario where Jack meets the younger version or the pretty version of the, this ghost woman in the golden 
ballroom. In the ballroom. Although there is extensive discussion about her legs beneath her dress mm. and the fact that it gets him all spiky. And the... Oh, yeah, they talk about his boner. They do talk about his boner. But the... the they, he, Steve does. Ultimately, what's happening there is that King is falling into the pit that many, many male writers fall into, which is that if they have a female character, they can only introduce her if they first describe her in a degree of visual detail that they don't seem to feel is necessary for their male characters. Mm. Whether protagonist or um, or Tertiary, side character, yeah. it, it sticks out like a sore thumb more when it's the protagonist because they're writing a woman who feels the need to look at herself in mm. the mirror and then describe herself in detail. And obviously this isn't what he's doing here because these are, yeah. um, are you know, it's third-person view of the character. But, you know... Things like when we first see Wendy or when somebody else first sees Wendy, there's a need to describe how her hair falls over her shoulders. And her How breasts. her shapely legs move. No, there's no mention of breasts on that All page, right. funnily enough, which is why it was hard to find. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, how her legs move under her clinging short-ish skirt, but relatively more... Like, just... It, it doesn't ever mention from a woman's point of view a woman staring at Jack's crotch and going, he definitely had the shape of a boner under there. Exactly. <laughs> exactly, and that is kind of. And look at those abs. It just feels. Have you got that weird. quote? Here we go. Male writers writing female characters. Uh, this was tweeted by Scott Biowolf. Cassandra woke up to the rays of the sun streaming through the slats on her blinds, cascading over her naked chest. She stretched her breasts, lifting with her arms as she greeted the sun. She rolled out of bed and put on a shirt, her nipples prominently showing through the thin fabric. She breasted boobily to the stairs and titted downwards. Perfect. That, was, uh, that may as well have been a scene in The Shining as written by Stephen King. We ran that through a gender flip machine for you folks and got this. Jake Brick woke up to the sun, tent-poling a boner that could shish-kebab a dozen donkeys. He scratched the rough-hewn bag of his magic scrotum lazily and wheeled out of bed, removing his shirt to reveal glistening pectoral muscles. As he stood, his entirely biteable ass looked like a pair of peaches straining against the bonds of their cotton prison. Then Jake bollocked downstairs in a testicly fashion. Glands. Whereas Kubrick uh, kind of avoids sexuality of all kinds. And we, we'll talk about that when we come to The Woman in 237. Mm. But there's a very good reason for that. Yeah. Still on the book here. There's a lot more about The Shining. And we get to sort of uh, explore it a bit more with Dick. We, we get a lot more internal, like, how Dick has used The Shining when relating to people. Mm. Yeah. On a side note, by the way... It makes no sense that Dick Halloran works in the Overlook and has worked there for several years. Yeah. I said that to you and you were you trying to make up all excuses well, no, for, no, no. well, maybe the ghosts weren't as I'm active not, I then. Wasn't, I wasn't making And I was like, excuses. no, he would walk into that hotel and go, whoop, nope, no, not I, staying here. I wasn't making excuses. I was just referring to the elements of the book that do actually acknowledge that, that he could pick this stuff up, but it wasn't particularly mm. upsetting to him. It was relatively easy for him to dismiss it. 
Um, he felt very strongly that these were just echoes of things that had happened long ago rather mm. than things that had any uh, impact on present time. And fundamentally, this is a really good job for him to have. He's the head chef in a hotel in Colorado in 1977. Mm-hmm. That's not necessarily something that you would walk away from just because you didn't like the equivalent of a picture that was on in one of the hallways. Side note, remember Mike in It? Remembering people of colour in Derry burning in a building, and he gets visions of that in both versions of the movie, in, in uh, chapters one and two. Yeah. In the original book, this is called The Fire at the Black Spot, which is like a, um, uh, a, a joint for... Um, a joint, a dance it's, joint. Yeah, it's a clubhouse which a all-black battalion in the military that's stationed near Derry mm. build, Frequent. or they, they're given this shed to use yeah. as a clubhouse because they're not allowed in the officers' mess. Did the people, the white people of Derry set the fire? Uh, the Derry equivalent of the KKK Brilliant. set the fire. So it's that like, all of that sort of like evil people acting, well, Pennywise acting through the evil of people. Yeah. The devil, folks. Um, and Mike's dad was saved by Dick Halloran, who had a yes. flash that who this shit flash was about to happen. That the, that the building is on fire yeah. and tells him, don't open that door, just run in the opposite direction. So basically Mike in it is alive and exists because of Dick Halloran. Yes. Okay. Uh, also, Kubrick went for the axe. The original book is a roke mallet. They keep going on and on about this fucking roke court. It's the best roke court in America. And every time they refer to it, to it, they have to explain why it's not the same thing as croquet. Not the same thing I'll as croquet. Just make it a croquet mallet, but it's got something to do with the shape of yeah. a roke mallet. It's. But there's a lot more sort of imagery of bash your brains out rather than smash through a door. Indeed. And also, it could have been a golf club. Specifically, it's uh, representative of a sport which is only played by, the by upper classes, privileged yeah. people in this one environment. That is a fine point. The fire axe is something that's supposed to be used by service people. It's not specifically a tool of the upper classes. Yeah. Although, again, that this is the ghost of the upper classes thing is definitely in Kubrick's version of it. Mm, yeah. Several Shining fans have actually drawn a parallel between the fire axe and a tomahawk. Although the rope mallet could also be a parallel for a specialised ceremonial club. And because it's a rope mallet rather than an axe, that means that Jack can attack Wendy and actually hurt her a lot with it. And she survives and fights back. Like she she has ribs broken and she gets uh, she and is injured for the rest of her life as a result. Uh, but whereas with Shelley Duvall, uh, you know, running away from Jack the whole time, but never actually getting hurt. Not that I want to see that, but that is a fundamental difference between the two portrayals. And there's something about Shelley Duvall's positioning and performance that we will definitely be talking about later. Although while he's uh, uh, hitting her with this rope mallet, he screams after her, nowhere left to run, you come. <laughs> But he also says to Danny in a moment of lucidity, run away, Danny. And that ties in more with the ending, which we'll again talk about later, because it's actually more important that we save that bit. The hotel realizes it's going to die because he's supposed to have been tending to the boiler this whole winter and he's been lax in his duties, possibly because the hotel kept distracting him. It's your own fault. And eventually the boiler blows. The Overlook Hotel goes the fuck up. It explodes. And apparently something resembling a manta flies out of it. Mm. 
And that's very important, again, with Doctor Sleep. Uh, at this stage, since we haven't seen the film, we don't know how we're going to do it. They're going to do it. In the book, the overlook was destroyed. Mm. In the film, question mark. In the edit here, however, I have seen Doctor Sleep, and I know how they do work in the overlook, and it's fantastic. Now, there was a 1997 three-episode TV miniseries version starring Steve Webber and Rebecca De Mornay, which revived several of the book's elements and added a few more things. This was done because... For 17 years, Stephen King was pissed off with the Kubrick version because it changed not only events, but the entire philosophy of his book. And uh, the TV miniseries is not great. Certainly not a piece of filmmaking up there with The Shining. It's very much a TV movie. Um, They filmed it at the Stanley Hotel in Colorado, which was the original inspiration for The Shining. That's Stephen had uh, stayed there, and that was the hotel that he basically envisioned. And so that's The Shining Hotel. Uh, the See, Kubrick's version, the exterior was the Timberland Lodge in Oregon, and the interior was a scale model that he made of the Awani Hotel Yosemite in California. Rather than filming in the hotel, because he wanted to do it for ages and have absolute control... They just made the whole thing in England inside, which when you look at the the extent of where Danny's, you know, cycling around the place and the, the, the length of this place, it is astonishing as a piece of set design. It's it, it's up there with Crimson Peak since Crimson Peak. So much of that was um, for which they set. appear to have built an entire house. Yeah. In all three versions, as far as I can tell, TV version, book version and film version, they cheat. And it's not a terrible cheat. It is paralleled with the moment in Pan's Labyrinth where two worlds have been given entirely equal weight and two completely different interpretations. Interpretations which overlap and parallel one another. But at one point with a chalk outline, and you can listen to our show on Pan's Labyrinth to get that, they lay their chips down on one of those two worlds, one of those two interpretations cancelling out the other. And Pan's Labyrinth remains one of my favourite films of all time. So this doesn't really change my perception of The Shining in any incarnation. At the point where Jack is locked in the fridge by Wendy in her moment of resourcefulness that I will credit the film version as well as the book version for, he has no way of getting out of there. And up until this point, the whole film could have been just psychological breakdown, the ghosts being representational. A ghost lets him out. There were other ways they could have done that. And my one that I came up with the other day was just have Danny wandering around the hotel and then his father's, can you let me out, Danny? Let me out, Danny. Please let me out. Maybe spin that and make it go for a long, long time. Have Danny go away. Then Danny come back. And eventually he lets his father out and all hell breaks loose. Mm. But if that's a human doing it, and very notably, Stanley Kubrick's treatment But originally, he read the book and was riveted by it. Then Stephen King wrote him a screenplay, and he tossed it out the window. Stephen King offered to collaborate with him on a second screenplay, and he said, nah. And then he wrote a new one himself. But he stopped his treatment at the point that Jack was in the fridge, because he couldn't work out a way to get Jack out the fridge. He didn't... Whichever way you go about it, it, it's not so much cheating, but it is definitely nailing your colours to the mast of, these are definitely not only ghosts, but they're psychic ghosts and uh, telekinetic ghosts who can definitely affect small objects moving, which is less... 
powerful to me. Yeah. I mean, King, first off, he didn't write his screenplay for Kubrick. What happened was Warner Brothers had bought the rights to the book. Right. And King had written a screenplay for them. They got Kubrick on board to direct The Shining, Mm -hmm. gave him the screenplay that had already been written, and he didn't read it. Yeah. And King was never invited to collaborate with him to write a new one. But he did read the book and was, like I say, riveted. he did read the book. Well, that was why he wanted to get involved in the first place, because he really enjoyed the book. But no, I agree with you. It, It doesn't... I wouldn't exactly call it a cheat, but it does, as you say, really underline here's what's happening these are actual supernatural beings they exist in the present because everything that Danny sees could genuinely be echoes of something from the past or the future it's just that because he sees them so vividly that's how they are um, potentially able to leave physical marks on him and and hurt him Hmm. whereas like I said with Halloran he only sees them very lightly and therefore he's able to keep them in their proper place but having the the fridge door opened by grady makes it no these are actual ghosts they are actually interacting they exist in the here and now and they're the ones who are causing all the uh, the unrest. It doesn't necessarily make it worse but it would have made it better if they could have thought their way around that especially since the ho- Stephen King complained of this film, it was Stanley thinking too much and not feeling enough. Indeed, and I don't... So if you're thinking, think something. Effort, think of a way to make that happen. Frankly, thinking too much and not feeling enough, the Stanley Kubrick story. You can apply <laughs> this to every single one of his films. Um, and frankly, the, the thing that I've encountered over and over again when we've been doing this Kubrick season is that these are films which... There's loads in them to pick apart intellectually after you've watched the film and and when you are in a position of detachment from it. What they lack is the ability to get completely emotionally absorbed in the story while you're in the process of watching it. For us. And that's exactly. And this is not to say that this is necessarily the, the, the way that films should be made. But for me personally, what I really enjoy is something that in the moment while I'm watching it, I can be completely um, swept emotionally up swept up in it and engaged in it right there in the story with the characters totally absorbed and feeling everything that they're feeling. And then once it's done... Then I put my intellectual brain on and uh, with with some distance and start digging. Then start digging and, and taking things apart. That's I how we don't work. Want to be mining a film for parts <laughs> while I'm still in the process of trying to absorb the whole. That's mm. just not how I operate. So actually, um, there was one yeah. uh, description of uh, uh, Kubrick's work. I think one of his DPs said this that he does it in sections he he just sort of makes bits of a film mm. and goes right this section this is strong this section this is strong this section this is strong and eventually he goes we have enough sections for a film mm, yeah i find myself wondering actually what would have become of kubrick if he'd lived long enough to work in tv I do wish Kubrick had lived longer. Mm. I, I definitely feel like the world was robbed of a couple of movies, and especially if he'd been more productive in the 80s and 90s. Yeah, but I feel like working in short-form section but long-form story mm. might actually have been more his medium. Mm. He'd have to live for a very long time to the point where TV actually really took that quantum Oh, absolutely, leap. yeah. It, took, yeah. Uh, it was, was about a 20-year period from the moment he died yeah. was when TV so he was, was starting to get good. So he was effectively in the wrong era. But I mean, yeah. if you think about the fact that he's... Because remember, he died just two years after this shitty 1997 TV m- miniseries of, of The Shining. But, but even down 
down to the way he framed his shots, he had TV in mind. Yes. Yeah. Well, talk about that in a second. Well, yeah, but it, it fits. Yeah. Uh, at the end of the 97 TV version, also, we get the graduation ending, which is not in any other version. And that has Danny, now in his uh, early 20s, graduating. And, and he is basically an older version of himself... And then in parentheses, Tony. We find out that his name is Anthony. Yeah, yeah. And this is something that's never absolutely stated unequivocally in the book, but it is very heavily intimated mm. uh, and, and certainly followed up on in Doctor Sleep. Although still but, not completely confirmed in Doctor yeah, Sleep. absolutely. There's question marks, but which the, I like. Yeah, but that Tony is an older future version of Danny. Mm. I think if you read The Shining alone, it feels like the implication is this is actually a version of him that exists in the future, casting Shining messages back to his child self. Kind of Donnie Darko style. A little bit. Um, I think there is an expanded way of taking that, which is that he is drawing on a resource that, as a five-year-old, he does not have. Marty, something's got to be done about your former self when you were a child. But will have in the future. There is a psychological concept of the adult in the child, which is when little kids put together concepts and coping mechanisms that they can't have as children. They are drawing on adult means that they don't have access to yet and as a result they're often distorted and they're unclear and they they don't always work the way that they would do if this was actually an adult able to rationalize this out um but that that again is another take on on what tony might be there is a strong indication watching the film version that kubrick did not get what tony was yeah the point where tony uh that danny goes away and tony's talking to uh the mum he's like sorry mrs by the way we've listened to the we hate movie show on the shining which is a joy to listen to it opened up the film for me i appreciate the <laughs> Film more because of them, but I can't not do their Huey, Dewey, and Louie version of Tony. Mm. Is it sorry, Mrs. Torrance? Danny's not here right now. And it's like, if you're actually her son from the future, wouldn't you be like, Hi, ma'am? <clears throat> or just like, obviously, like you'd speak to her a little more warmly, try to help her a bit more. Yeah, I mean, he's the the idea, I suppose, with that is that he's he's told Danny not to tell his parents that he's there and that he gives him information about the future. So he wouldn't refer to Wendy as mum. But I think the way it's done in the film, it kind of backs up the theory that this is all psychological in the sense that because Tony comes out when Danny is feeling under emotional stress, it's effectively a divided off personality. That Tony is a uh, a character that Danny has created, an extension of the, the standard imaginary friend construction, mm. that this is where he puts all the things that he can't know yet, yeah. that he not can't as in physically cannot, but all of the things that he does not want to know yet, that he cannot deal with and cannot process. Mm. And that is interesting in and of itself, but it is very different from how Tony's portrayed in the book. Yes. Uh, also, at the very end, after, like I said, there's the graduation ceremony, young Danny slash Tony sees the ghost of Jack, his father, smiling proudly at him for getting graduated. It's a very happy ending. It's a it very is. kind of... like it's, it's bittersweet, and it plays in with the book version of Dr. Sleep in that his father's shade is fine. That's not the way the movie went. And another thing that uh, the TV version has at the end, they rebuild the Overlook. 
<laughs> Ready for more. Round two. Sigh. Apparently there was a version of the screenplay where they specifically stated... The Kubrick screenplay. The Kubrick screenplay, uh, where they specifically stated that the Overlook carried on and continued to open every season. Oh, shit, seriously? And would continue to, like... Absorb more and more victims. So in the book, it got it blew up. Mm-hmm. In the TV version, it got rebuilt. And the Kubrick version, in some versions of the script, it carried on opening. Yeah. And just, although they would probably have had to uh, repair a lot of that weather damage. Yeah. I mean, in the final version of the film, it just, it still is. Nothing happens to it. Yeah. Once again, the movie of Doctor Sleep does address this. Also, the book version, uh, it's worth noting, had two of the worst clocks in the world. Mm. There's the murder clock, where a guy with a rope mallet comes out and batters a little wooden woman with the rope mallet. And then there's the sex clock, which Danny observed seeing a young man and a young woman kissing peepees. It's a 69 cuckoo clock. Jesus Christ! Honestly, I have a sneaky feeling that this is the same clock. They just both see something different in it. Yeah. It's it's a Pennywise clock. Gotcha. It crops up a bit of whatever might be in their mind. The situation with the boiler that is in the book and isn't in the film, that kind of, it's got to be constantly vented, otherwise it will blow. Taking that out means that you lose a symbolic representation of Jack's own temper. Yeah. The, the, there's a different sense of what cabin fever can lead to, which is what part of this is all about, if you're in an environment where it is literally just dull and boring and nothing's going to happen for five months and ugh. And there's this constant sense of we're in here with a fucking time bomb. Must be and maintained. And if we don't continually maintain it and stay continually on edge and it aware of us. it, it will blow and it yeah. will kill us all. Yeah. Now, Stephen King was really pissed off with what Kubrick did with his book, The Shining. To the point where he ended up making this trailer for his first directed feature film, Maximum Overdrive, which was absolutely terrible. Hi. My name is Stephen King. I've written several motion pictures, but I want to tell you about a movie called Maximum Overdrive, which is the first one I've directed. A lot of people have directed Stephen King novels and stories. And I finally decided if you want something done right, you ought to do it yourself. It was my first picture as a director. And you know something? I sort of enjoyed it. What is going on? I don't know! I just wanted someone to do Stephen King right. You want a war? You got one. I just want to get the hell out of here. I'm going to scare the hell out of you. He did not. And Maximum Overdrive is nowhere near anyone's top 20 Stephen King adaptations. Fortunately, King's work would be handled a lot better in the 80s and 90s, specifically by Rob Reiner and Frank Darabont, with Stand By Me, Misery, The Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist. When you look at the appalling pile of shit that is the vast majority oh, yeah. so of many the crappy early 80s TV movies. Stephen King adaptations, I can see why people would look at The Shining and go, well, this is clearly the best one. Or any version, including the book, of Pet Cemetery. Indeed. It's, it's, it's the only one that up to a point you could look at and go, well, that is definitely a film. We both really love Stephen King's work, or what has come of Stephen King's work. 
But the books have had some moments. Best line in the book, Halloran's... Do you want to read this one? No, you go ahead, my love. Halloran's Halloran's testicles turned into two small wrinkled sacks filled with shaved ice. What? (laughs) Figuratively speaking, not literally. The Shining can't do that. What the fuck, Steve? Is it really necessary that we talk about somebody's balls in quite such detail? I think it's only just uh, uh, maybe superseded by this description of Halloran. For a moment, his whole life seemed to flash before him, not in a historical sense, no topography of the ups and downs that Mrs. Halloran's third son, Dick, had lived through, but his life as it was now. Martin Luther King had told them not long before the bullet took him down to his martyr's grave that he had been in the mountain. See, this is all fine so far. Dick could not claim that, no mountain, but he had reached the sunny plateau after years of struggle, as in he had managed to get to a point where he was comfortable being a black man working in America in the 70s. He had good friends, he had all the references he would ever need to get a job anywhere. When he wanted fuck, why he could find a friendly one with no questions asked and no big shitty struggle about what it all meant. What the f- When he wanted fuck? I'm keeping that one. I want fuck. I mean, that's even... You won't get it. <laughs> that's even that's more... That's the way That's almost it. as creepy as Dennis Hopper in Blue, uh, Blue Velvet going, Maybe wants to fuck. And we can also talk about Roger, the guy in the dog suit. You remember the guy in the dog suit, folks? Okay. In the film, everyone will know this. In the film, at the end, when Wendy's running around the Overlook Hotel going, Oh, God, oh. Oh God! Oh, she runs upstairs, and then you. They Kubrick dwells on Shelley Duvall's face for a hot minute as she goes, <gasps> as she looks through the into a room of one of the hotel bedrooms, and there's a guy with his ass cheeks hanging out of a bear suit, and then he sort of he hitches his way up. And it's, he was blowing a guy in a tuxedo who sort of looks at a kind of a, oh, hello. Who you, way. Don't, you don't initially see. You just see the guy in the suit bent over a bed. And after he sits up, after a moment, another head hoves into view from yeah. the other side of the door. But there's this cheap-ass-looking bear costume. Honestly, that bit has always kind of bugged me. When we saw it last night at the cinema, I had to scrunch myself up to stop bursting out laughing. It is the absolute best way you can drain all the tension out of your film with something absurd. Embarrassing. Something that poses so many questions, none of them scary. I don't know why Kubrick put it in there. It undercuts everything he's trying to achieve at this point. Did you notice the yeah. guy's ass yeah. is hanging out? Oh, yeah. This is the first time I ever noticed oh, I never noticed yeah. cheeks. There's oh, dude, cheeks. Then, he's ready for action. Oh, yeah, he's always had that ass out. But what? <laughs> I guess, by the way, first of all, do we know for a fact that it's a dude? I think it's a gentleman. Yeah, I don't. I just assume. Yeah, I guess I always assume. Maybe, maybe. Correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe it looks like a hairy ass sticking yeah, out. Yeah, not- uh, that doesn't look. It might be one of those cotton L bears. <laughs> My honey's clean. Yeah, it's clean because he took the flap out and let the cheeks fly. My Coveralls th- that don't quite cover all. Oh, cousin Merle. And the reason that it is so baffling is that there is actually in the book a narrative line 
that this guy in the... And it's not a bear suit, it's a dog suit. But that's the thing. I expect, but it looks like a bear. I yeah. felt like that Stanley was like, right, go out, get me a, a, a dog suit. And then they went out and they came back with this. He's like, what the fuck is this? It looks like a, a rooster or something. He's like, this is the best that I could find. It's a bear! Go get me a dog suit! Go get Busy Bee! Go! <laughs> Busy. You stupid hotel manager! There we go. You want your busy bee? You get your busy bee. You get bee. the busy bee. I need to trim her whiskers. It's in the crate. It's in the crate. It's not in here. It should be in the crate. It's not in the crate. I just told you that. God hell, it's in. She doesn't get her door. She's going to flip out. You left it at the hotel. You go back and you get her busy bee. Go to the hotel and get busy bee. Run. Have you tried looking under the bed? Of course I've looked under the bed. Of course I've looked under the bed. That's where you look when you lose things. That's a parrot. Right, like this one, the yellow and black one there, that's... This? That's like a bee. That's it's like a bee. fish. Well, I know, we fish. know that's a fish, but to a you know dog. What? Just shut up. I'm going to get this and I'm just get out of here. You. Thank you for your help. Okay, this, this is you. least like a bee of the ones we have here. I didn't ask for your opinion. I asked for a toy that you don't have. And that bit from Best in Show is exactly what happened with this dog suit. I would imagine. Uh, but the... <laughs> point is that that scene belongs to a whole segment in the book where Jack is delving into the hedonistic, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Basically when nobody is caring about anything, it's all in the moment and they're totally absorbed in... Um, it's a prohibition enjoying. era bacchanalia. That's the one, thank there you. you. That, that's wonderful. Not the word I was looking for, but that sums it up brilliantly um but the idea that everybody is lost in this complete um bacchanalial absorption of we are here we are incredibly rich we can do whatever the fuck we want tuxedo hedonism yes there we go the games begin okay that will do nicely um but but that tuxedonism oh very good but that belongs to that whole section which has been removed in its entirety like there is nothing else nothing else apart from the photo at the very end of the film there is well, nothing else the whole else. golden room is full of like ball dance yeah, ball but there's dances. No, no indication that it's all about fucking drugs and booze and sex parties which mm. is what it is we don't even see any of the scrapbook with all of the newspaper cuttings about the, the murders it is on the table at went, one point it is on the table but you, they never read yeah, it yes so in the book Jack finds this whole scrapbook of all the history of the Overlook this is the we get to find out a lot more mm. and these ghosts are losers it's quite fascinating how pathetic they are. It's like, this guy in a dog suit was named Roger. He was gay and besotted with Horace Derwent, who was the... The owner of the hotel. Owner of the hotel, point. and who was bisexual. And he was cruel to poor Roger in the dog suit. So Roger would kind of, like, roam the halls, and he actually tries to attack Danny at several points. He's like, I'm going to bite off your little dick! Mm. And, like, Roger's an asshole, folks. Don't feel too sorry for him. But, yeah, and, and there, there is actually um, a bit where they talk about... 
um, Horace's bisexuality and that it wasn't really bisexuality. It was just that he allowed fawning gay men to have sex with him occasionally so he would have yeah. power over them. But what He was a git. What King paints a picture of is of the 20th century's architects, the great men at the top of American industry, all converging on this hotel every summer. Mm. And this would be where they would come to ski. This would be where they would come to spend the season. And it was very much sort of oh, a marvellous party. Mm. And the deals that would go on in these rooms would shape America. They, these were the the fathers and mothers and occasionally grandparents of the baby boomers who are still keeping this old world alive. Absolutely. And it's really quite revealing reading this now, 40 years after the book was written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 42 years. Because that's like everything that's wrong with America because of how we pushed it towards capitalism at the expense of any prizing of human life. Absolutely. And specifically the fact that it all arises out of mobsters and racketeers and crooks. Absolutely. There's crooks. A, there's a mob presence in the uh, hotels. Well, we we have a crooked <laughs> we have a bunch of crooks in the White House who are currently awaiting having the, the you know being dragged in front of the courts and they'll probably just go yeah so what and they'll probably get off scot free because that's how the justice system works. It makes exceptions for the rich crooks. But that, that's America. That's what the Overlook is. It is a hotbed of these worst people in existence all at once just having some fun. And there's such a bunch of fucking losers. Mm. And like that's the overarching theme of the fact that they're on Indian land. They took a burial ground. They made it theirs. They fended off attacks from uh, Native Americans at the time. They stole it. They are... The worst of white America, all in one place. Absolutely. They are thieves and crooks. They and racists. They stole a country and are currently using it for whatever mm. resource suits them. And that is the evil that permeates the land and the hotel and, and basically anybody who has then died in the hotel who has any semblance of shining within them gets absorbed into it and adds to the emotional echo mm. that then reverberates over and over and over again. And the Overlook gate, there's one look at Danny and goes, we want him. Yes, So we are going to work on this weak man and get him to kill his child so that we can have him. Yeah. And again, like Kubrick was in line with this insofar as he was making a story about a weak man. Mm. Yeah, specifically he was making a story about, and this this was one of the things that, that Stephen King said about why he didn't like this version of it, was that he had written Jack to be somebody who you know has the propensity to uh, be vulnerable to this suggestive abuse your child thing that he's getting from the hotel, uh, but that you see his gradual descent into utter lostness. And in the film, he felt Jack Nicholson was a psycho from the very beginning. Yeah. And I think essentially... Which is why he's pissed off from the very word go. Indeed. I think essentially... I love me, it. Um, it, it, was, it was observed that when we were listening to the commentary. By the Steadicam operator, Garrett Brown, who was, in fact, the inventor of the Steadicam. Not to be confused with John Alcott, the director of photography for The Shining, and Barry Lyndon and Clockwork Orange. In fact, Garrett Brown, the Steadicam operator, had to leave production 
and train another Steadicam operator so that he could go and work on Rocky II, which he had a commitment to, and that is a commitment I admire. His observation was that the film version was a lot more psychoanalytical than the book. I don't personally agree, uh, especially after reading Doctor Sleep and how that informs backwards on The Shining. However, I do feel that the book is... It, it presents you with a psychoanalytical story from the perspective of the client or the patient. And the film gives you that same story from the perspective of the psychiatrist. Yeah. The person who is outside the situation, who is observing the effect of denial. And there is a big streak of denial through the fact that Jack is a monster in both versions. When it comes down to brass tacks, before the story even begins, he has broken his son's arm when his son was three. This is not acceptable on any plane of, of how you interpret the story. However ambiguous you take Jack's character to be in either version, his behaviour is fundamentally unacceptable. But there is more of a sense of, I did these things and here is how I'm trying to justify them in the book. Whereas in the film, it's more, he doesn't admit, he doesn't admit, he doesn't admit, he admits. And then it and all comes pouring out. Exactly. And that's how you see denial from the outside. Mm. You don't see all of those internal workings of, I know I'm a monster, but I have to have all these coping mechanisms because I can't possibly admit that mm. to myself. It's clear that Kubrick thought was loathed the character of Jack and Absolutely. was like, fuck this guy. Yeah. I am going to assassinate him. Mm. Understandably, because I, like I say, I loathed him as well. And uh, there's, there's more complex things in the book that uh, defy that loathing mm. and make it difficult. One of my favourite moments, actually, of, of Nicholson's performance is when he's had the dream that he killed Wendy and Danny and admits it to Wendy when she comes and wakes him up. Mm -hmm. He's vulnerable. He is vulnerable. And then Danny walks in, having been strangled by the woman in 237. Mm -hmm. Lorraine Massey. Wendy accuses him of doing it. And for a brief moment, he sat there and he holds his hand up. With his, his hair's right wild. Hand. His hair's completely his wild. eyes He's boggled. still half in this dream. He doesn't even seem to really know where he is. And he's, it's, he's almost holding this hand. And I thought in that moment, that's the hand he grabbed Danny mm -hmm. with when he dislocates. Because in the film, he dislocates his arm rather than breaking it. Mm -hmm. um, that's the hand he used. And he's, for a moment there, he's wondering if this hand went off and did something without him. And then it dissolves his from the shot on his face where you see this madness coming through in his eyes. Mm -hmm. It dissolves into a shot of the hallway in the hotel and the chandeliers are laid over his brow, his nose and his mouth. And it looks for a brief moment that his face is merging and becoming the face of the hotel. Mm. And that is one of my favourite scenes in terms of how it's composed in terms of what you see and how that communicates an idea mm. and Kubrick absolutely definitely included the subtext of this is Native American land mm. there's the somebody noticed that in room 237 that there's a Native American on the can of soup or biscuits or something in the larder it's like mm. yeah there is that but it, rather more importantly there is copied Native, Native American, American art, art all around everywhere. the Colorado and lounge. rugs, and there are um, uh, Native patterns in the stained glass in the windows. They stole and co-modified it. Absolutely. It's everywhere. It absolutely <clears throat> permeates it. And in a way, I suppose that's Kubrick's visual version 
of the long newspaper clipping stories of the mm. history of the criminality that lies behind the Overlook, mm. which honestly, that whole segment in the book, it really reminded me of something like um, LA Confidential. LA Confidential, yeah. Yeah. Which is a different era because that's the 50s, but same... Uh, technically, it's the 40s. Okay, all right. In the book. Yeah, but it same just, It spans seven years and goes into the 50s. Gotcha. But yeah, okay. it's a very similar tone. And uh, mobsters again. Mm. And the idea that uh, if they can make it look official, they will try to be upstanding mobsters, but they're still criminals. Mm. Yeah. Um, other things that... Stan added to this story that weren't there in the first place that we can thank him for. The Yellow Beetle. This is something they picked up on in Room 237 and I actually think holds weight. In the book, it was a red VW Beetle that they're driving up to the Overlook in. In the film, it's a yellow Beetle. Later on, you see that red Beetle and it has been smashed into by a lorry in the snowstorm. This is Stanley going, okay, that red Beetle, that's Stephen King's one. Fuck that one, it's destroyed. Anything could happen now. That, I, I, I buy that as visual language. Mm. The actor playing Danny came up with the idea of Tony talking to him through his finger and just waggling that as a rather than having Tony be an external actor talking to him, which was in some versions of the early script. Mm. Okay. Uh, the twins, they're mentioned in the book. Mm. They never actually you appear never visually, yeah. and they are some of the most abiding visual imagery in The Shining. Everyone remembers those fucking twins. You could do a, a, a DVD cover, a Blu-ray cover, with just the twins, and everyone would know exactly what that was. That's yeah. The Shining. Um, shooting Scatman Crothers at 148 times, that's not necessarily something that uh, Stan you know, added to the story. It's just how he fucking did this. 148 times. Like I said, Scatman Crothers was weeping. What do you want from me, Stan? And then, ironically, in the behind-the-scenes doc, um, Kubrick's wife asked Scatman, what did you think of, of uh, you know, working on the film? And he would have been completely within his rights to go, well, it's been exhausting, but I've learned a lot, which is what Shelley Duvall said. Mm. And I think it was ultimately a positive thing in that kind of reserved, it hurts so much way. But he bursts into happy, joyful tears and says that he felt like Danny was his son. He really loved it, apparently. Mm. So he loved and hated it, and it was terrible and wonderful, yeah. which is kind of extraordinary, and we'll talk about Stan's abuse later. But uh... Apparently that scene still holds the record for the most takes on a scene with dialogue. Motherfucker. Uh, the all work and no play scene. The whole scenario. That is an absolute classic piece of cinema. Where starting where um, Wendy finds all of the all work and no play, which were by the way hand typed out by Kubrick. I was watching him smashing away a typewriter in the kitchen. I was like, well, he'll be writing the all work and no play, and I was fucking right. He wrote every single one of those. And the whole point was he didn't just get it done with a machine or get someone else to do it for him. He put his blood, sweat, and tears into that one little, like not even an effect, just. A, a piece of arcana for the film mm. and it totally pays off because as she's going through all of these and there it's not the words it's how they're arranged each mm. and every time in a slightly different way that's the madness of it mm. and Stanley Kubrick was in many ways mad mm. so it kind of works that it came from this obsessive yeah um, but yeah, the whole, like, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains out. That whole scene, it's fucking shiver inducing. But that was all Stan. He came up with that. Mm. And obviously he worked with Jack and Shelley and, uh, and Danny and Scatman. And they worked out things that their characters could do. Mm. He is an absolute nutter control freak in filming. And yet 
he still defers to his actors mm. for ideas of how to move the characters forwards. He will tell them to do a scene and not really tell them how to do it and eventually they'll find it but he will also let them occasionally improvise and he will let them occasionally come up with something the here's Johnny moment Mm. Stan was like I'm not familiar with that what's that mean because he'd been living in England even though he's from New York for you know several decades and he hadn't been watching the Johnny Carson show Mm. but he allowed it to stay in that was of course entirely not in the book yeah Uh, Nicholson's ripping into uh, Shelley Duvall when she came in when he was working as well that Mm -hmm. was based on something that actually happened to him Stan uh, no to Jack Nicholson Nicholson. yeah Yeah, he was he brought his own darkness writing something and his wife interrupted him and um he was very aggressive with her and she divorced him understandably <laughs> it is it is an electric scene because it's so fucking horrible mm. but as a creator who has been disturbed time and again i'm like bastard i hate you but i can kind of see where you're coming from but i do prefer the version of that that he does in um as good as it, as good as it gets the much more yeah. comedy scene it's much more comedy dialed how she wondered could she find such hope the most shameful part of her. At last, she was able to define love. Love was... Mr. Udo, I'd like to speak to you, please. Love was... Are you in there? Son of a bitch! Yes! I found Verdell, Mr. Udo. Well, that's a load off. Uh-huh. Did you, uh, did you do something to him? Do you realize that I work at home? Uh, no, I wasn't aware. Well, I work all the time. So never, never interrupt me, okay? Not if there's a fire. Not even if you hear the sound of a thud from my home and one week later, there's a smell coming from there that can only be a decaying human body. And you have to hold a hanky to your face because the stench is so thick that you think you're gonna faint. Even then, don't come knocking. The Hedge Maze was entirely a new creation for the film Mm. and this was so they could have a big memorable ending and it took a hell of a lot of work. They had to build like the the side of a hedge maze beside their um, the the set of the hotel that they were um, building and having them running past then there was a completely different hedge maze built in a different area and that one overhead shot with a rostrum camera where it's like how the hell did you get such a perfect still shot of the maze? He's shooting a model, and then right in the middle is a composite shot of a piece of the maze that they filmed in a car park. Mm. And that's magic. That is cinematic um, magic. And I, I wanted to balance this out by praising Stan where credit where credit's due, because it is rare that anyone gets to criticize Stan Kubrick and actually come off not sounding like a philistine. Mm. So I wanted to make sure that I understand, I recognize game. His creativity and innovation as a photographer, I think is undisputed. In terms of, here's the way I want this shot to look, mm. and I will pull out all the stops to get the shot that I want. Mm-hmm. I am never going to not respect that he is massively capable of doing that. I think the reason why that doesn't necessarily translate into, wow, he's one of the best filmmakers of all time in terms of, of uh, actually 
creating movies and creating cinema is that for me, it's not just about the visual image. And it certainly isn't just about the, um, the still or only moving a little bit visual images that uh, evoke wider things. I mean, I, I am a big fan of seeing a painting that I will then sit and stare at for a long, long time in order to pick out finer details of it. I love doing that. But that's not what I want from a movie. I want the storytelling. I want the engagement. I want the, the communication. And he's very staccato in terms of how he does these things. And apparently it, 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 that's sort of on purpose because a lot of his films have themes of broken communication in them. Yeah, absolutely. But if that's the only story that you're telling... He is telling other stories, but he does lean on several aspects of how humanity is viewed mm. from this particular lens. Yeah. Also, the cold ending, because, of course, the hedge maze was uh, made up by uh, Stan. He he decided for the ending to be that Jack just freezes to death. He just, mm. after uh, running around for a while, uh, they've his wife and uh, child have escaped. There's nothing more for him to do. He's just staggering around on his own, and he slumps down, defeated, and freezes to death. And you get that bang yeah. cut. And there's versions of the, of the script where his body is found, and there's versions where it's not. And ultimately, the version that got released into cinemas was mm. just it kind of ends there and there's no yeah. uh, clarity on what happens next the absolute first theatrically released version uh, had two extra minutes at the end before the photograph scene uh, where you get to see um wendy in hospital and like you know she's recovering and it's that she and danny are both okay and it's like oh it's it's a happier ending and then it cuts back to the overlook but you like he stan actually contacted all the uh, uh distributors and all of the uh, um projectionists and said cut that bit out imagine in this day and age trusting a network of projectionists to do the final edit on your film. There aren't any projectionists anymore. They're just people who press play. Exactly. <laughs> Sit with your finger over the stop button and when it hits this point, no, press stop. They wouldn't stop. need to. They'd just send out the, the better version of the, exactly. the file. Yeah, yeah, I know. But it, I just found that yeah. fascinating that he was like trusting kids with mm. scissors to... And there was another end. There was another ending where um, Halloran turns up and goes fucking crazy with his shining powers and kills everyone and then himself. And I'm like, thanks for not doing Don't that one like step. That. Yeah, no, that was bad. Um, but the I think if you if you look at the the presence of the maze meant something specific, and they again they mentioned they said it, it was on a the Freudian reference. Yeah. It's it's to do with something that Hitchcock said about the the way that a maze mm. folds in on itself and wraps around mm. is representative of how the human brain folds in on itself and wraps around. And you can take that physically mm -hmm. because that's what the human brain is, massive sheets of tissue that all have to be folded and curved so that it can all touch itself like a ball of string and also fit in your head. Wibbly wobbly brainy wainy. Indeed. Um, but also that that's what brains do symbolically and allegorically that's what memory does it all wraps around and folds mm. in on itself and that's how um your the parts of your brain that tell you what to do they they don't go in a straight line they curve around corners and sometimes they can be misinterpreted and that jack ends up freezing to death 
in the centre of a brain that doesn't work for him anymore, Mm -hmm. which previously we've seen um, him looking at his wife and child in a in a distanced way because he's looking at the model of the the maze in the hotel lobby and it's and then it almost becomes like he's this god figure looking down on his family mm. running around in this maze that for me all does tie together in the the idea that this is this is the mess that is Jack's brain and ultimately that's what kills him is there something in the idea that because Kubrick was approaching everything in a very freudian way and we're very young Ian, that might be the major disparity. I think that's probably part of it, but they kept saying that it was very Freudian. But honestly, I don't recall seeing anything that I specifically went, wow, that's massively Freudian. You haven't studied Freud as much as you've studied Jung. That is very true, and ultimately you can't distill all of Freud down to cock shots, but there's a lot of that in Uh, but but how could you be really really into uh, Freud and also totally shut off sexually? Oh wait, now this is the worst idea you ever had. Also, there's more to psychology than just Freud and Jung. It's worth noting, by the way, this is something that I read the other day, and I'm quite astounded that I hadn't come across this before. Early in his practice, Freud was actually really um, interested in digging out the idea that there was a uh, a network of child abuse going on in the upper, in upper class families that the uh, the repressed memories that were coming from his client base which was for the most part um, wealthy white women um, was all because they were being they all had been when they were young subject to abuse from their from their families and specifically from their fathers and he was treating all of this as very real and actually looking into it right up to the point where he realized it actually implicated several of the families that surrounded his own and then he went oh it's all symbolic it's all yeah they're just imagine these are moving on to my next project fantasies uh and uh, yeah so swiftly moving on so effectively he was condoning child molestation he stopped looking into it because of the things that he was potentially about to find okay good old freud yeah. A few words on aspect ratios. All of Kubrick's films were shot on 35mm, except Spartacus and 2001 in much wider 70mm. The most common aspect ratio throughout his lineup was 133 to 1, which is a 4x3 Academy Square. Remember the way that 20th century TV used to be? Lolita, Clockwork Orange, and sometimes Doctor Strangelove were a wider 166 to 1, Barry Lyndon 177 to 1, Spartacus and 2001 in wider still. 221. Kubrick was appalled back when he finished 2001 and then later saw the TV version with the sides hacked off. Obviously, a substantial change considering you lost nearly half the image. He realized with horror what this would do to his carefully planned framing in future. It was unthinkable. And seeing as he was at the beginning of the 1970s at this stage, 10 years before pan and scan VHS emerged and widescreen laserdisc became an alternate format only rich yuppie Patrick Bateman's cinephiles could afford, 20 years off of widescreen VHS releases of The Abyss and Die Hard 2, and more than 30 years off the success of the DVD format, thanks to the PlayStation 2 by the way, at which point he would be dead. He had to shape his career to accommodate for how most people would see his art. I equated it earlier today. Like, if you imagine being a director back in 1970 and realizing, when I put out this piece of art into the cinema, it'll be like an ice carving, an ice sculpture. 
and people will see it there and they go, oh. And then when it gets to TV, it will be hacked down and effectively a photograph of that ice sculpture. The art is gone. You now only have a facsimile of it. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, but the original ice sculpture has melted. Well, yeah, that's the point. <laughs> I specifically chose something that was fleeting, that mm-hmm. would be gone. It would be reissued in cinemas, but the, the majority of people wouldn't be able to get to it. Mm-hmm. The version you would know would be TV. Yeah. As a result, from that point on, he would film with tape on the monitor to indicate the confines of this kind of screen. Effectively, for him, future-proofing it. This way, the version on TV was the version that he wanted to show audiences. However, cinemas operated with widescreen in mind, so he actually shot on location with that kind of wider frame, and the sides were masked for TV and home video. Again, it wasn't until he died in 1999 that the general public were first catching on to widescreen televisions. Do you remember the first massive widescreen TV our friend Tony had when we moved in with him? It was so big, you could crush a man to death with it. It's not like your average like plasma screen or, or LCD TV. This means that later home releases would go back to his theatrical frames, sometimes to the consternation of Kubrick fans. Hence, I only ever saw The Shining on TV and then later the DVD, both of which were in Academy Square. I skipped the 2007 Blu-ray, which went back to the widescreen image, though with two thin black bars still pillarboxing on either side. The 2019 4K version has been ever so slightly zoomed to make it fill the frame of the standard current TV screen size. And compared with the square that I grew up with, it makes a world of difference. Full Metal Jacket, which I saw a few weeks ago, again for the first time in many, many years, now looks like a made-for-TV movie in places. You remember the, the bit with the soap beating, when the, uh, the, he puts the soap in and he just pounds the bed with it? It just looked like just an old video from TV. That square image tells my brain this information and no amount of me overriding that fact with what Kubrick intended can compensate on the granular level. I I can rationalize it all I want, but I can't stop my brain going TV, 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 old TV. The Grand Budapest Hotel, by the way, has three different ratios in its runtime, the bulk of it being the main story, which is presented in that 4x3. So there is an unusual presentation commonality shared by that hotel with the Overlook. And that may be the reason why when we were watching the um, little bit of it that we saw in the 4x3 ratio, Mm -hmm. I was constantly expecting it to expand out. Yeah. Whatever Stan wanted, this new 4K scan displaying in widescreen looks absolutely gorgeous. It was, that was the version we saw in the cinema last yeah. night. All of the negative associations with a cheap TV production have been ironed out and unfolded. It finally feels like the technically beautiful, awe-inspiring film that everyone has always told me it was. Another thing which we only found out this morning... I've been watching a version of The Shining that's 31 minutes shorter than the American version. Act. To bits, and this is not a, a studio took the director's perfect creation and took chunks out of it. Kubrick did this himself. Yeah, took out a lot of scenes with people talking to each other. A lot of the whole shining business, mm-hmm. like Danny's seizure at the beginning, the Doctor. Right. This, I just want to talk briefly about this scene because this, to me, when we went to see it in the cinema last night, this was the first time I'd ever seen that bit. Mm-hmm. 
and it's really, really important. And I don't mean this in terms of a, it, it's a connective tissue with the book that it wouldn't otherwise have, because I don't remember how much of this is, is in the book. There are a couple of scenes where Danny gets taken to doctors, but I don't recall this one specifically. But in the version of the film where this scene is present, two really significant things happen that changed my perspective on how Danny and Wendy's story unfolds. And the first is that uh, by having him in this uh, very childlike bedroom with his mother and a female doctor specifically, it makes the transition of Danny from this sort of comforting, feminised home environment that's very maternal and very caring and very warm to a point to the extent of where anything could really be warm in the late 70s. <laughs> um, I don't know, they had a lot the of... decor was horrible! Everything was orange and brown. Everything was I orange was and brown. There. Everything was wood panel. <laughs> yeah, That's warm. It just, oh. Well, no, but it's fake wood panelling, which okay. you know when you try to climb up it, which I did. Um, anyway, so he goes from that environment to the very uh, stark, straight line heavy masculine environment of the hotel and it feels like there's a theme there of this transition of a young boy from uh, the the safe protectivity of the maternal environment to the toxically masculine let's drag him into this world where he's got to be tough and he's got to be able to stand up for himself and protect himself against this huge giant adult man with weapons mm -hmm. okay so you lose that now and that may not have been you know Kubrick may not have felt that that was particularly significant that's fair enough it's a thematic element that he may not have intended but I felt that removing it then lost you that thread but the other one and this is really important narratively is that in this scene Wendy admits to the doctor that when Danny was three Jack dislocated his shoulder. Mm -hmm. And the way it's done... And it's, it, by the way, Shelley, probably Shelley Duvall's most focused, natural performance it, in the whole film. Absolutely. Where she seems the most like a person. Her performance in this particular scene is brilliant. And it underpins... Which I'd never seen until yesterday. Absolutely. And it underpins everything she does later. Now, we now know that the reason why the bulk of her performance is her screaming and running around the hotel, flapping her arms, is because Kubrick cut a lot of the scenes where she actually had dialogue mm -hmm. because he didn't get on with her and he couldn't get the performance that he wanted out of her. And he treated her absolutely horrendously to try and work her up to a point of desperation that he felt was valid and realistic and uh, would convey what he wanted to say. Now, I'm going to say this now. We have seen so many interviews with old white men talking about this going on and saying, you know what? It was unpleasant, but it was totally worth it. What you get out of that performance is exactly what Stan wanted. And sometimes when you're a director, that's what you have to do. Fuck off with that shit. It was not worth it. That woman looks like she's having a nervous breakdown. She was. And it is not on. You do not do that to somebody. If, if your actor is not giving you the performance that you want, you recast. Okay, that's pure and simple. It is not acceptable to me that he did that to her to get that performance out of her. 
But going back to this scene, the uh, she sits there and the camera stays on her face and she explains to the doctor what happened. And the way she's conveying this, she is embarrassed, she is ashamed, she is really sad that this happened, but she's kind of, she's got this little smile on her face because she's trying to minimize it at the same time. And this is really, it gives you an insight into something that was significant about why Shelley Duvall was cast. And one of the things that got brought up in the, the behind the scenes stuff was that they didn't cast uh, a, a beautiful, attractive- Quote unquote. Uh, yeah. Um, strong-looking woman, which is, frankly, how she's described in the book. And she is far more active, and she has several scenes where she actually is uh, resourceful, and she fights back, and she is actively trying to get her son out of this environment. All of that is gone from the film. Um, it's just this jellyish, collie wobbling woman who is refuses to look facts in the face until it's too absolutely. late. Absolutely, and they can and and Kubrick cast Duval with the look that she has, <laughs> and wanted to get the the uh, presentation of the character over in the way that he ended up forcing out of her that he did, because he could not get his head around the idea that a woman who had more apparent agency and more self-possessedness and more resources and was more attractive would possibly remain in that situation with Jack who was clearly abusive and had been for years right now what that does is it whitewashes this and reinforces this ridiculous myth that only victims get beaten up that only women who are weak get stuck in abusive relationships and that is pervasive and it is fucking dangerous because this is why women who have always considered themselves to be strong and who have resources and are intelligent and have good jobs get themselves into that situation because they end up thinking well that's not, that's me. not me so this relationship can't be as bad as I think it is and they ignore their own instincts because they think that if they don't if they listen to them then they're admitting that they're weak and they can't do that this is what bugged me about uh, the portrayal of Bev at the beginning of it, chapter two as yeah. well. They made her more like Shelley Duvall in this than Bev in the book. Yeah. Kubrick could only perceive Wendy as being a classic victim. And that was one of the reasons why I was always really, really down on the film version of The Shining. I and I'd, I've never really been able to get behind everyone saying that Shelley Duvall's performance was amazing because for me, it undercut any semblance of reality or significance that that character had had. But having that scene in where you see her her response and her attempts to sweep under the carpet what happened with Danny you can and it's in the language even she, he had an accident he dislocated oh, just one his of those shoulder. things not my husband dislocated his shoulder it got dislocated my husband it's, was there absolutely but then there's there's so many little visual things in it as well she's got a cigarette in her hand and the ash, ash is huge and that they happens. do that by the way by putting a uh, pin all the way yeah, through the cigarette so that it, it, it stops off. it dropping off. But, but that was a deliberate thing. Exactly. It shows how how nervous she is, but she's holding herself really rigid. rigid. Yeah. And obviously if it's burning down, she's drawing on it a lot, which means she's nervous. And then it cuts to the doctor and the, the way the doctor reacts or doesn't react is also really significant because you hear that story from somebody, that's horrific. 
And her reaction is professional mask of nothing. She doesn't react at all. No help. And that, it's no help, but it also conveys how terrible that story is. And that undercuts uh, Wendy's attempts to minimise it. And so that's another reason why I really feel like that scene being missing... It loses them so much. Americans, from the sounds of it, wouldn't have ever had to get by without that scene. Mm. But yeah. British oh, yeah. people Just might have. Just in Europe, for some reason. It was it, apparently the, the extra edit that he did was the result of it not going over well in America. But I don't understand how you could uh, see the, rev- the unfavorable reviews and then go, oh, yeah, that. That's clearly the scene that we, we can afford to lose. I will say that I felt its length that yesterday. I would, there was more of a kind of, wow, this has really gone on way longer than I remember The Shining going on for. I'm sure I didn't see that scene before. I didn't know about the uh, extended edit. It takes a long time to get to where it's going, and then it takes a long time. Like, Jack goes crazy about an hour before the end of the film. Mm. That is a lot of running around and, and panicking. And I, when you've seen it a couple of times, you're like, oh, God. Again, this is a Damocles drop that could have been prevented there are times when even the Shelley Duvall version of Wendy is quite resourceful she goes to the snowcat and finds the distributor caps being cut but otherwise she was totally going to drive her and Danny out of there Um, she was uh, using the radio as much as she could but he ruined that as well she locks him in the fridge that is a smart thing to do It's it's a good way of like it's not a thing that is going to require undoing by her. He's got food. Mm. She can take Danny into Sidewinder, get herself away from this guy, mm. and send someone else up to try and help him. Absolutely. And I think when we cut back to him, he's actually set himself up a little yeah. bed in the corner and he's eating crackers and peanut butter. Which is why, and then a ghost lets him out, is a shit way of undercutting that resourcefulness. Yeah. And it's an at risk to her as well. She has to drag him all the way there. Yep. And she, she resists the temptation to put him in the freezer, which I think I might have. <laughs> And pin him to a slice, a slab of frozen meat, <laughs> and then punch him like Rocky. <laughs> I'm very confused. I just need a chance to think things over. You've had your whole fucking life to think things over. What good's a few minutes more gonna do you now? Stay with me, please. Don't hurt me. I'm not gonna hurt you. Wendy, darling, light of my life, I'm not going to hurt you. You didn't let me finish my sentence. I said, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your brains in. I'm going to bash them right the fuck in. (laughs) Okay, so, themes of The Shining. Okay, Stephen King's guilt over alcohol addiction. Huge. We didn't mention this for, for the book because it's a major theme. This is an apology book from Stephen King. Sorry I was such a shit to you, wife and children. Am I wrong? Honestly, I think that's Dr. Sleep. This is him making a stab at examining it while he was still in it. Yeah. Yeah, I think you're right there. At the same, he's he's looking into like what's the worst that could happen with yeah, this, yeah. and and it's it's an amplification of incident, some incidents that did actually occur. And uh, they, you, one of the first things you find out about in the book is that Jack Torrance's father beat his mother nearly to death. Yeah, 
And he was like a little boy who was like, uh, you know, adoring of his horrible, violent, drunkard father. Mm. And he couldn't see the monster that this was. And it's carried on. Absolutely. And so there's this generational violence thing which carries on in Doctor Sleep and is totally a theme we'll reprise on that. Yeah. But that if you take Kubrick's Shining and then add it to Doctor Sleep, as in Kubrick's Shining film to Stephen King's Doctor Sleep book, that food is not there. Those roots are not there. Exactly. And this is what I mean when I say that the book is more of a, this is this situation from the perspective of the person who's in it. And the film is more somebody who's looking in on it, who sees these abusive monsters as isolated influences. Mm. Uh, Sorry, isolated incidents where we can... From a, a far enough perspective, we can see all of the things that surround them and feed into their situation. Oh, yeah, so we can see exactly why this person does this. And honestly, it's the flip side of victim blaming, mm. which is effectively what the presentation of Wendy becomes in the film. But it's this idea that if we isolate these situations, then we don't have to do anything about them other than address the single individual who's in the middle of all of it. It doesn't allow you to then see, well, the parents feed into this and then their parents feed into that and then you're into community uh, not approval but tacit approval by the fact that people know this stuff's going on and doesn't don't do anything about it and it is frankly you get to the point where it is culture wide and then it starts to feed into that whole thing about America being built on criminality because they're they're two sides of the same coin it's acknowledging that this is a system that is complicit with the misbehaviour and uh, pain inflicted upon others by men exactly and don't get me wrong it's overwhelming when you look at it in those contexts because then you're sat there going, well, what the fuck am I supposed to do about it then? Because it's so huge that it's really hard to pick it apart. And ultimately, the only answer that I have for that, and I'm not going to say that this is the right one, but it's the only one that I can find for me, is you deal with it one person at a time. You support your friends who are in those situations. You protect your children and make sure that they don't get exposed to that kind of thing. You try and, if there's if you see any signs of that in yourself, you try and recognise where it comes from and try and address it before it comes out and does further harm. That is all you can do, is the tiny little bits that you can influence a little bit at a time. And over the generations, things get better. It's hard to see it when you're looking at the individual incidents, but it does get better and it from talking about it, from bringing it out into the open and sharing those things so that people can understand when it's not just them. And you actually see it in the story, the fact that Jack's father is so fucking horrendous and there are implications that he had issues with his own... I mean, that's only hinted at, but that his own father was even worse. Jack is bad. Jack is really, really bad, but he's not as bad as his own father until the hotel gets hold of him and, and kind of amps things up. But the the point being that it improves very gradually and over time. And that feeds into one of the reasons why I really, really, really loved Doctor Sleep, but we will talk about that later. Mm. This was a hard, hard book for me to listen to. I mentioned uh, last week in the Full Metal Jacket episode that Charles Whitman's father was a self-confessed autocrat and a firearms enthusiast who abused his children because he was obsessed with perfection. I didn't mention my father was a self-confessed autocrat, a firearms enthusiast who abused his child and was obsessed with perfection. 
My father was also not a drunk, but when he drank and was lonely and embittered after the divorce, I was the only person around. And I grew up having to think to myself, I can't be that. I cannot be what this man becomes. So, listening to The uh, Shining, and, and uh, not so much that the book is sympathetic to Jack, but we spend a hell of a lot of time in the head of this man constantly making excuses for how shitty he is to his wife and child. And feeling terrible about it, and like it's, it's slaloming between making excuses and actually knowing that there's a terrible person there, and, and then asking himself, well, what am I supposed to do about all this? And there's a fragile masculinity there that is a major theme of the book. It's sort of in the film a little bit. In the book, there's a, like a constant, like, you know, Wendy undermined me, she said this, this, this bitch. Yeah, and a man controls his family, he controls his wife, he controls his children, a man should yes. be in charge of how they behave. There's a lot of sort of bitter dwelling on how dare Wendy say this to me in the uh, book which is exemplified in the Delbert Grady scene where he's like a man needs to control his family I can't remember the exact wording correct I corrected my family you know we don't think you have the belly for it we think that you're a pussy we think that you can't control this woman you gotta slap her about the face and say get in the kitchen and make me a giant bowl of fruit cocktail Jesus, the amount of fruit cocktail that goes to waste in the fucking Overlook. The ghosts of the Overlook, like I said, they're a bunch of fucking losers, get to Jack by poking at him with his, oh, a man can't handle his shit, huh? Can't handle his shit, this little brat. You gotta get him to take his medicine. And taking his medicine is basically strangling him. And it's like, this is madness. This is, I will take control of my life by throttling it. It's, it's doubly sad to know, by the way, that, that one of the twin girls tried to take a box of matches and burn the Overlook down and then was killed by her father. Uh, and then she turns up with uh, as a ghost, like, come play with us, Danny. And it's like, this girl had agency. She was trying to destroy this place. And now the Overlook is effectively bloodbending her. That's chilling. She may even have had some shining herself. Maybe. But this posh English butler and colossal racist, right in the middle of Colorado, it's a weird scene but again one of the most powerful and it's shot in this horrible men's urinal that's like so aggressively red it's like this is like a, a, they had a, a set left over from Clockwork Orange or something this just horrible like it's like the emperor's toilet from Star Wars or Snoke might piss in here I say and dismiss that Jack Nicholson basically is just himself uh, in every uh, role but there is nuance to all of his powerful performances some he's just kind of coasting but he is an actor that makes a huge impact he i I would say that having seen uh this and batman recently and having in the same day yeah and having a few good men permanently emblazoned on my brain. So that one's not going anywhere. Um, the similarities between those characters are in the way that they express themselves when they become passionate. Mm-hmm. The differences are in the reasons that they become passionate in the first place. Yes. So, remaining themes of The Shining, the ghosts of our past, this is the whole cycle of Mm. abuse that goes forwards. Again, this is much more in in the book, but it's there, still in the film, the ghosts of America's past are there, Mm. with, you know, just looking back on these awful people. 
And this is what the wasp's nest is symbolic of as well, because <laughs> fundamentally the reason that Jack thinks that he can neutralise it and then safely give it to Danny to play with, and I will say again, what the actual fuck, um, is because that's advice Here that you he go, got. Here you go, kid. Play with this taser. Exactly. It's not got batteries in it. But because that's advice that he got from his father. Yeah. And he follows it blindly, and that's the point. If you follow the actions blindly of your parents without ever interrogating them and, and mm. looking at what they did and why and what their reasons were, then you are doomed to repeat those mistakes. My father would say in the same breath, my father would have knocked me across the room if I'd done that. To which I actually remember at one point, because he used it enough times, saying, do you want recognition for not hitting me? What do you want, a cookie? <laughs> I hadn't seen the Chris Rock routine at that point. Oh, okay. But, uh, yeah, I, I don't get how you can point to the terrible behaviour of your parents and say, well, at least I'm not doing that, like it's somehow meretitious. Mm. Like, you're lucky we're not living in the past. You've not been knocked across the room. Luxury! Yeah. But that's the thing. It also it all stems into this old people view that young people should have it tough because it didn't do them any harm. If... You want young people to be harmed. It did do you harm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What the hell happened to, I want my child to have a better life than I had? That was a, That's a more new way of moving forward in the world. We need more of it. But that's, that's supposedly why all of this capitalism exists. Because people went, I want my children not to have to work yeah. quite so hard as I did. I want to invest and, and make sure that they have a nest egg. Yeah. But fuck everyone else. Well, yeah. That is the downside of that, unfortunately. Yeah. And the other major theme, which isn't in the Kubrick version, is loving your abuser. Uh, because... Kubrick couldn't possibly f fashion in his head why anyone would love Jack. And the book embraces the difficult process of Danny still loving his father despite the terrible things he's done. Yeah. It's a bit more sort of hand-wavy with Wendy where it's like eventually there's a point where Wendy can quite legitimately go, yeah, you know what, enough. Mm. And frankly, that point should have come three years ago after Jack broke his arm. Yeah. But Danny continues to love his father. And we've saved a few things from the book for here that are very different. Number one, Halloran survives. The uh, absolutely classic Jack Nicholson scream and axe blow of... <gasps> it's priceless for film, but it means that Dick Halloran did everything he did in the film to bring them an Uber and then abandon it. Dick Halloran provides the body count for this film. Mm, yeah. But at the same time, he survives in the book. He gets beaten up horribly with this rope mallet. And I was like, he's dead, he's dead, he's dead. And then it turned out he wasn't. And him just dying is so sad and lonely and terrible and racist. It just, it's, it's, it's like, you know, well, this is the... If you, if you want to put it in another way, it's not racism so much as calling out that we are on the ground of where the white man's burden is to destroy people of colour to take their things. And in this case, it's a really complicated scene. 
and scenario because he comes after Wendy and smashes through the door and does the here's Johnny. Shelley Duval opens up that window, puts Danny out there and then tries to get through. And this woman is basically a beanpole. Incredibly thin. She is more slender than Danny is. She played and olive oil in the Popeye yeah. movie. That's she, how skinny she is. Shelley Duval tries her best to make us feel like she can't get out of this window. And she like backs out of it and then tries to adjust it. And if you notice in the second shot, it's actually lower to make it seem less likely she can get out of it so then she's panicking in the bathtub just going, ah, after doing that horrible run around where she flaps her hands back and forth she runs like tingle in the zelda games which is a japanese caricature of a gay man jack comes through the door tries to unlatch it she stabs at his hand and he goes oh after a little cut little pigs little pigs let me come in Not by the hair on your chinny chin chin. Then I'll huff. And I'll puff. And I'll blow your house in. Cut forward after one minute of chopping and screaming, and Wendy gets a little slice in with the knife on the hand. And then he just goes, oh fuck it. His heart's not in this anymore. He actually, he's right there about to kill her. All of this, like, coming, like, culminating this, all of this pressure, this build-up, and Kubrick expects us not to think, oh, that was a bit deflating. He just leaves. Mm. Like, he's, you are there, man. You're at the nine-yard line. I don't, I don't know football. You are, <laughs> like, I don't want him to kill Wendy, but all, the circumstances are propitious. Now, I'm not trying to tell you this scene isn't effective. I'm trying to tell you it's really effective. It just deflates incredibly quickly as soon as Jack hears Dick Halloran slowly approaching in a snowcat and pulling up outside Wendy's window. He and Wendy both pause, and then the next shot you see of Jack after him seemingly listening to the voices in his head, he's stumbling through the hotel again after having completely abandoned the whole kill Wendy thing. And the reason this bothers me is that it prevents Wendy from being able to protect herself or her son. It's a very easy, hand-wavy, oh, and then he just left, he had other business to deal with, which does not fit with that build-up. And very deliberately sidesteps the physical confrontation between Wendy and Jack from the book, which does allow Wendy to be a protector. And you could counteract this with, well, it's a horror, it's not supposed to be about empowerment, it's supposed to be about disempowerment. Wendy never has an iota of power in the first place. She moves from a zero to a hefty negative, which again corroborates what Sharon said about positioning only weak women as the victims of abuse. And in fighting him back to protect her son, she sustains grave, lifelong injuries. I don't call that empowerment. That's self-sacrifice. And the positioning of women as screaming, weak, frail targets that get hunted down by brutal men and murdered is one of the aspects of horror that doesn't teach us much of real value. It's empowering insofar as it presents you with a choice that you can put yourself on the line, rather than accept a fate at the whims of your murderer. But it's not an empowerment fantasy in the way that male empowerment fantasy is about being the most skilled person and vanquishing your foes. I thrive on horror that explores internal conflict. I'm less interested in horror that focuses on victimization. The snowcat arrives immediately out 
outside the bathroom window, which is the thing that motivates Jack to get lose interest and wander off, before she goes running off throughout the overlook, you would think another glance out of the window and she'd see the freaking snowcat, which would presumably renew her determination to get out through that window. Rather than wandering off. The of her escape is right there. Rather than wandering off into Axe Town. Just, I mean, even at that point, get a toothpaste mug and start digging the snow away from the window. Something. Like that window, like, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's fine. It's fine. He goes off. He's looking for Danny, but Dick turns up and he's like, kills Dick. All Dick has done is bring us the snowcat to replace the other snowcat that, that he is destroyed. That's literally all he does. Oh no, actually he destroyed it before he got put in the fridge. So it's not like the ghost helped him destroy I mean, that. If you if you want to give him one other thread of here's something Dick did that was useful to this situation, I suppose radioing the fire department and saying that he's concerned something might be going on at the Overlook mm-hmm. might then induce people to be out looking for them when Danny and Wendy drive up. I mean, if you want to look at actual action reaction, he talks to Danny about The Shining. Danny calls him because he can't... Like, these days you just use a cell phone. But he uses The Shining, calls him in Miami, and basically gets Dick to bring them a ride. Mm. And Dick dies for that. Yeah. It's sad as fuck. In the film, Danny doesn't call him, does he? He just has a premonition. He just goes, ah! Bad shit going down. Yeah. It's the red rum bit, isn't it? He's Mm. he's, he's thinking about the red rum. Uh, anyway, so in the book, Halloran survives. Jack takes him out with a mallet. Then Danny says to the thing that resembles Jack, you're not my father, this is a false face. And the overlook that has its grip on Jack Torrance, trigger warning here, this is pretty gruesome, smashes itself in the face with this wooden mallet ruining its visage over and over again until nothing of Jack remains. And another place where the film and book diverge is that in the book, the thing that is in the body of Jack, false face now smashed right off, rushes to vent the boiler to prevent the whole hotel from catching on fire and dying. Whereas in the film, he chases Danny around the maze and eventually Danny outwits him and he collapses in the snow. He just runs out the clock because he yeah. just loses all of his... It's, well, it's the, not... the Overlook doesn't have any need of him no, anymore. Danny's Overlook gone. The Overlook didn't really want him. In... Frankly, the Overlook thinks he's an asshole. Yeah, in the book, part of, of Jack's confusion is that the, the hotel convinces him that he is the important one um, and that it wants him. And this plays on his own... Uh, vanity and vulnerability and conviction that he is a useless piece of shit and ultimately that's the hotel being abusive in itself because it what it really wants is Danny because Danny's the one with the power yeah although there is some hint that Jack may have a little bit of shining himself and that's how he can see things yeah the overlook then tries to take Dick who survived he, they're about to get away on the snowcat Dick goes into a shed to, which, from the sounds of Doctor Sleep, is quite an important shed, um, and to just get some blankets so that they can keep warm on the way down to Sidewinder, and the hotel's like, kill them, kill them! And Dick's like, yeah, gonna get a rope mallet and kill them. And then he goes, nah, I'm not like that, and then puts the mallet down and goes off, just indicating that ultimately when you're a, a decent person, the Overlook can't get to you, and which is why effectively, while this is in Kubrick's version, it is... A family together disintegrating and going mad. Mm. The uh, the King version is about how effectively, even though it, the night is incredibly dark and hellish, 
you can rescue human decency from the absolute worst of situations. And specifically, and again, this is a theme that's continued in Doctor Sleep, it is not like you you just have to be a good person and then nothing bad will ever happen. No, it's if you are a decent person who is able to be honest with themselves because it is ultimately the secrets and the denials that will fuck you up royal. Also, as it turns out, uh, through the bittersweet ending, which I'm going to get to in a second, uh, it turns out Jack was better off dead because his life insurance policy pays off and also the uh, people who um, ran the Overlook give uh, Wendy a decent compensation for the shit that happened. they give her a settlement so she won't sue. So, specifically, they go from not having a house at all to actually Jack being able to set them up through his terrible death with... A place that they can live and a future, those three. And Halloran sticks around to take care of Danny. Mm. Which is not to say that everything is suddenly magically wonderful. They do still struggle and the money runs out yeah. eventually. And it's Danny not- does not have the best of lives as we find out in Doctor Sleep. Mm. But we'll talk about that later. I've seen it said of Kubrick throughout our many studies of him this uh, past few weeks, and it's brought us low, by the way. We felt really depressed doing all of these. We've been, like, you actually keep asking me, when was the last time we felt sheer joy for a film? And I can't remember, Mm. because this has been so cold. Absolutely. And this is why, folks, that we only tend to cover stuff that we like. Yeah. We don't, want, we, don't, we don't want to do this. This is, this. I mean, all right, for Alex, this is his job, but we do this because it it's it's our recharge. This is what we do in the evenings after work to, to connect and to feel something positive about the world. And when you fill that with Kubrick, ow, yeah. it hurts. How is the word? <laughs> ah, there you go. Last time we felt unbridled joy was Detective Pikachu in May of this year. Jesus. It is now days shy of Halloween right now. It has been a dark year, folks. <laughs> that doesn't My mean that we haven't had fun goodness. along the way, but like I'm talking about pure joy, yeah. which just happens to coincide with Endgame, which marks the end of pure joy for me. Yeah. At the moment. And obviously that's been a big part of it as well. Yeah. Although there isn't space for that in this podcast. There's mere days between Endgame and uh, Detective Pikachu. And obviously I've been mining Scorsese deeply to to get that same sense of joy as I do from Marvel. I, I, I tried Taxi Driver, Raging Bull, Casino, The Wolf of Wall Street, The Aviator, Gangs of New York, Cape Fear, Bringing Out the Dead, Shutter Island, Goodfellas... The Departed, but n- nothing helps. It's almost like like I'm getting something completely different from them. Now, I saw it said of Kubrick that he was a pitiless director and that this can be seen as a strength. He shot people not as we would like them to be, but as they are. Frail, weak, flawed. Now, I also saw it said that, oh, he doesn't shoot real life. He is a very operatic director. Which is it, guys? Which is it? I've got people telling me that The Shining is a stark portrait of domestic abuse. And I've got Steven Spielberg telling me that Jack Nicholson's performance is kabuki. Either he's operatic and shoots everything stylized, or he's Ken Loach. I think I And get, just shoots everyone miserable and terrible. I get what people mean by that, because I think that they're talking about his circumstances are operatic, but his characters are real. The problem is that when you say his characters are as they really are, weak and fragile and, and flawed, what you're saying is that's 
all yeah. they are. To me, he always overshot on this principle. He made them rotten and pathetic, and almost nobody ends up decent and alive, seeing as Dick Halloran ate an axe and Domino in Eyes Wide Shut disappears with a throwaway story about HIV. Remember? Mm -hmm. That suggests that how people are was in fact how Stanley saw them, and I simply cannot agree that people are so wretched. Otherwise, why are we even here? I'm going to pause for a moment. The scene in room 237, when that old woman comes out of the... Uh, well, sorry, when that young naked woman comes out of the uh, bath. On a side note, yesterday, that made a man behind us very uncomfortable. And he started jabbering away and talking to his mate. Because he was like, I cannot look at this bush right now. I am getting so weirded. I um, had a quick look at them once the lights had come up. That wasn't his mate, that was his girlfriend. Whoa. That might explain why he was so uncomfortable. Yeah. He was just chatting away. Also, there was a kid down in the front row. This was a massive screening, by the way. It was screen eight at the local Odeon, which is huge. And it was really well people. There were loads of people there. And a lot of them had never seen The Shining. Do you know what baffled me? You know, right, this was this is a tiny thing. And we had the phones thing going on again. And But whatever, fuck that. But I was going to say, there's a kid down the front with his phone just flipping, 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 flipping. He was bored out of his fucking mind. His... Don't come and see The Shining. Do you know how easy it is to not go and see The Shining at the cinema in 2019? It's real easy. His sister sat next to him. Him was FaceTiming with somebody. Yo, what's up? Seeing The Shining. Ah, but... How, what did you trip? How did you come to this film? When we walked in and everybody kind of... Everybody drip-fed in because they didn't do trailers because it was a classic. Yeah, they so... did that thing where uh, if it's the beginning of Jaws, they yeah. start straight away. If it's The yeah. Matrix, they make you wait 30 minutes. Yeah, that's the one. It was the Jaws principle. It was, yeah. Um, so... People were coming in late, and that's fair enough. It wasn't their fault. They didn't know. But then there were so many people sat there eating popcorn. It's not really a popcorn-y film, is it? It really isn't. <laughs> like, you, you've gone to see The Shining. One presumes you know what you're going to see. They did not. Why are you bringing popcorn in? They were also bringing huge gulp. Because yeah. the amount of... I have never seen so many people go and go to the toilet and just one person comes back, another person leaves, not four people leave. Four people come back. They were just go... I think they were very uncomfortable At by the At least film. one of those was also going to complain about the people on the phones because after they came back in, oh, yeah? I saw the usher wander back in again. The same usher that you... I'm assuming it was the same usher that came cool. in after you'd gone out. Yeah, but that, again, they then put the phones away and didn't do anything while the person was there. So it's It sucks, folks. But it, like... What I need to do, and this is what Mark Kermode said in his book uh, on, on cinema, there needs to be an usher there all, all the, the time. time. And he needs to be able to see yeah. when people are talking, when people are on their phones, and just go, shush, phone off. They and need just, to be at the back. At the back, yeah. Just monitor the whole thing. And everyone needs to feel like we're being watched. That's a good thing for the cinema. Americans, they have that. English, they do not. We cannot cope with the cinema. We want to be in our living rooms, we want to be on our phones. That is the general status for British audiences. But there is also, our multiplex chains are bastards and are dramatically understaffed and underpay their staff yeah. and treat their staff appallingly. Yeah. So, fund them more. And by all means, sell everyone popcorn, but use that money for ushers. The money you save on projectionists. Sell them wet popcorn so that it doesn't crunch. You. Here's your... <laughs> Soup of popcorn. Here's your Pepsi. Here's your popcorn. Okay. 
Let me just say this thing. The bit with the beautiful young woman who coldly comes out of the bath. Like, again, like that, like, like long, a person from miles away slowly moves up and into frame is really unnerving. It is exceptionally well done. And uh, there's that bit where Danny comes in to see his father and his father just slowly turns his head. That is just fantastic filmmaking and very atmospheric. And this is that two-handed party trick of Kubrick's for this film in particular, intensity and hold. It turns out he's kissing a young nubile woman and she turns into an old woman. And Ari Aster was sat there making notes going, okay, gross naked old woman, use in every movie from now on. Yeah, okay, brilliant. I can tell you what the, the two of them have in common actually that I really, really don't like in the creation of horror movies. And it is the evocation of an environment that recreates fear very accurately in many cases but without giving you any kind of uh, guidance or even hope hmm. that you can overcome it. What is the point of that? And I always interpreted that scene as as, um, as, as like, oh, what if you were kissing a beautiful young woman and then she went old? And I thought, actually, existentially speaking, that's like you marry a woman and she's young and beautiful, and then eventually you're saying about Schmidt style... Helen and I have been married 42 years. Don't dilly-dally. Lately, I find myself asking the same question. Who is this old woman who lives in my house? Or you're Dennis Quaid and you're marrying a 26-year-old yep. to try and sidestep that for as long as you can. Why'd you do that, Dennis? Cut to Dennis Quaid <laughs> grinning away. <laughs> anyway, so it really isn't much more complicated than imagine that this young flesh you're with will eventually wither. And this horrible old lady laughing. <laughs> Behold! The ravages of age. And then Garrett Brown, the inventor of the Steadicam, in the commentary mentioned that Stan was uh, very squeamish about and, and disinterested in and, and sometimes repelled by the act of sex at all. And I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. Then why, in the name of all that's holy, did he make eyes wide shut? That's the bit that baffles me. It's not why he made it. But that is the answer to why Eyes Wide Shut is how it is. Yeah. That's the answer to the riddle. Mm, yeah, so that's helpful. <laughs> Stanley hated boning. That makes perfect sense. That level of physical intimacy frightened him. Or repulsed him. But he did seem to very much idealise it and, like, have it all reduced to pictures and images and boobs. Well, he was like, other people have sex. It's like when Voldemort hugs. He's like... <laughs> This is sex, isn't it? He's vaguely aware that sex happens. Sex happens. I d but he, like, obviously, he must have had sex at least twice because he's got children. Yeah, but I, I will say this as well. His relationship with his wife appears to have been a very happy, loving yeah. and resilient one. So clearly, whatever it was he had going on, they were compatible in it. As much as we thing. have kicked around this saint of cinema, it would appear that he had people who genuinely loved him, yeah. despite all of his trying difficulties. And also that he had an unexpected level of tenderness towards children. He didn't want to bully and uh, um, hurt this uh, uh, the child playing Danny. He ran him through many, many, many takes, mm. but he wasn't horrible and mean to him. Yeah, and he specifically set up several yeah. scenes so that Danny Lloyd would not be exposed to the unpleasantness yeah. and horror that was going on in them. There is a tenderness to the child in Barry Lyndon mm. and... 
when that child dies, that is a genuinely upsetting, sad scene that I think Stanley actually felt because he imagined what this would be like having to say goodbye to one of his children. And let us not forget, the reason that he removed Clockwork Orange from Britain was because it was implied to him that his children were in danger and nothing was worth that. So not going to happen. So despite all of his coldness and his mania and his obsession and his ridiculous IQ and his not being able to relate to people and his apparently being really not a control freak according to certain people. Yes, he was. <laughs> um, he did have love in him to give. He just didn't put it in his films. <laughs> well, honestly though, I I think on balance, I'd rather have somebody who put their love into their children and not their films than the other way around. Yeah. Like, ideally, you can do both, but, you know, it's got to be one or the other. So I called this coldness nihilism in Clockwork Orange, but that's probably not entirely accurate. Clearly, Stanley believed in something. Clearly, 2001 A Space Odyssey indicates... He set his 200 IQ deliberating on the vastness of existence and didn't only see emptiness. I personally may never know with a measure of trust what that greater worldview equates to because he was so quiet and reclusive and never explained himself. He did not respond to praise or criticism. I've characterized him as this angry, shouty man, but apparently he only got angry and shouted at Shelley Duvall. Everyone else, like... Oh, that makes me feel even worse for her. Because you're special. <laughs> Uh, there was a uh, a guy, uh, a DP he clashed with, I think, on uh, The Killing, maybe, yeah. The DP had set the shot up much further away, and uh, Stan came ac across and said, uh, okay, so why is this shot like this? The composition's different. The DP said, well, it's easier on me, and it's basically the same shot as well. And Stanley, very quietly, very coldly, said, put the shot the way I said it was, or get off my set. Which is kind of the quiet respectful version of what James Cameron said to the DP originally of Aliens. And the DP thought about it and went, all right, and then set it up and, and like, that was it. He didn't get into flaming rows. He didn't threaten his extras. He just was very cold and quiet. And that was him. And if you look at shots of him when he was a kid, he looks like Stanley Kubrick without the beard. Mm -hmm. He's like this baby Stanley Kubrick, just a short <laughs> version of Stanley Kubrick. You stick a beard on it, he's a tiny Stanley Kubrick mini-me. <laughs> He was quiet and reclusive and he never explained himself. That's his prerogative as an artist, but it doesn't help me connect to his work. But regardless of my personal appraisal and take home of his films and his body of work, I am incredibly glad he put those out. He did what he did. Because he has inspired some of my favorite directors who clearly have taken a leaf out of his book. Paul Thomas Anderson, Wes Anderson, Nicholas Winding Refn, Robert Eggers, Duncan Jones, Denis Villeneuve, and of course, Steven Spielberg. You take that vital link out of the chain, you have a different world of cinema. And for that, I will always be grateful for Stanley Kubrick. School of Movies is funded by Patreon. Our $15 patrons get sponsor credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, David Sheely, Kevin Vai, Daniel Salguero, Connor Kennedy, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolfe, 
Kat Essman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Luke Hatfield, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicol, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksh, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, and Lorraine Chisholm. There's another thing from A Clockwork Orange in that red bathroom scene. Philip Stone from A Clockwork Orange, he plays Alex's dad. The one who's like, oh, we've rented your room out, son. He's the I corrected them guy. Also, and I cannot believe I didn't make a huge deal about this. The Shining is not the kind of film that you would look at and think, well, this is epic, but it must be one of the most expensive films of the time. The Shining, this horror movie, cost $19 million in 1980 money. And that is an astonishing amount. My guess would be building this massive set and filming in it for the best part of a year. To put it in perspective, The Empire Strikes Back cost $18 million. Mind blown. It's fairer to say that Stephen King shares my outlook on humanity a lot more often. And the end of the book, remember of course Stephen King is notorious for not being able to handle endings, I think he actually did it for Doctor Sleep this time. But the end of the book cements this. Whereas in Kubrick's film, Wendy is a sniveling wimp, unable to protect herself or her son, in the book she fights back, she's horribly injured but continues to protect Danny. Whereas in the film Jack never really wavers in his attempts to kill his son until the boy gets away on his own cunning. In the book, Jack tells Danny to run. Whereas all Dick does is get slaughtered after traveling hundreds of miles to deliver a snowcat, here he survives his injuries and spends the rest of his life looking after Danny as a positive male influence that the boy desperately needs. This isn't simply a matter of who lives and who dies, so much as King allowing us to draw a bittersweet, hopeful conclusion from a long, uncomfortable, bitter, angry story. He lets Danny go with love, and that is absolutely crucial. Even Kubrick allowed that to happen in some form, with this kid exhibiting unusual smarts in the closing frames with his footprint trick. I have a newfound appreciation for The Shining. And this was ultimately due to King and Kubrick, whether they liked it or not, working hand in hand to help me mine what I needed from the story. I'm going to read the epilogue to you from Stephen King's book, and we will return with Dr. Sleep. It should be clear why this is philosophically far more in line with my own sensibilities. Okay, so at this very end of the book, uh, Danny and Dick are fishing. They were silent for a time, looking over the stillness of the lake, Halloran just thinking. When he looked back at Danny, he saw that his eyes were filled with tears. Putting an arm around him, he said, What's this? Nothing, Danny whispered. You're missing your dad, aren't you? Danny nodded. You always know. One of the tears spilled from the corners of his right eye and slowly trickled down his cheek. We can't have any secrets, Halloran agreed. That's just how it is. Looking at his pole, Danny said, Sometimes I wish it had been me. It was my fault. All my fault. You don't like to talk about it around your mom, do you? No, she wants to forget it ever happened. So do I, but, but you can't. No. Do you need to cry? The boy tried to answer, but the words were swallowed in a sob. 
He leaned his head against Halloran's shoulder and wept, the tears now flooding down his face. Halloran held him and said nothing. The boy would have shed his tears again and again, he knew, and it was Danny's luck that he was still young enough to be able to do that. The tears that heal are also the tears that scald and scourge. When he had quieted a little, Halloran said, You're going to get over this. You don't think you are right now, but you will. You got the shine. I wish I didn't. Danny choked, his voice still thick with tears. I wish I didn't have it. But you do. For better or worse, you don't get to say no, little boy. But the worst is over. You can use it to talk to me when things get rough, and if they get too rough, you just call me, and I'll come. Even if I'm down in Maryland? Even there. You'll be my friend? As long as you want me. The boy held him tight, and Halloran hugged him. Danny, you listen to me. I'm going to talk to you about it this once and never again this same way. There's some things no six-year-old boy in the world should have to be told. But the way things should be and the way things are hardly ever get together. The world's a hard place, Danny. It don't care. It don't hate you and me, but it don't love us either. Terrible things happen in the world, and there's things no one can explain. Good people die in bad, painful ways and leave the folks that love them all alone. Sometimes it seems like it's only the bad people who stay healthy and prosper. The world don't love you, but your mama does, and so do I. You're a good boy. You grieve for your daddy, and when you feel you have to cry over what happened to him, you go into a closet or under your covers and cry until it's all out of you again. But see that you get on. That's your job in this hard world. Keep your love alive. And see that you get on no matter what. Pull your act together and just go on. All right, Danny whispered. I'll come see you again next summer if you want. I'd like that. He put an arm around Danny's shoulders and the boy reeled the fish in. Little by little, Wendy sat down on Danny's other side and the three of them sat on the end of the dock in the afternoon sun. There's actually one snippet of a quote from Kubrick <clears throat> that ties in with what you've just said there. And this is from a, a series of interviews that he gave in the early 80s. Okay. And the question was about his work being misinterpreted and the implication that audiences might misunderstand his purpose and that he was saying that reason could be dispensed with altogether mm. in The Shining because it all descends into this madness. madness. And his response was, people can misinterpret almost anything so that it coincides with views they already hold. They take from art what they already believe and I wonder how many people have ever had their views about anything important changed by a work of art. Now, I don't necessarily agree with him in, in entirety, but I also don't necessarily think that what he's implying there is a bad thing. If art is... More for reinforcing than changing. And specifically communicating... Clarifying. Uh, between groups of people in the, in the same cultural context and sharing between people in different cultural contexts, Art, at its best, is about talking to each other without having to use specifically 
agreed upon words that everybody knows mean the same thing. You're communicating emotions from one to another and it's it's finding shortcuts. In a way, I think the best art for me that I respond the most strongly to is not the stuff that's going to change my view on something. That's for the logical stuff. That's for the scientific. That's for the evidence. That's the research and the, the experiments and the studies. That will change my views on things. Art is about connecting with people over things that we already share. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And School's Out. School's Out. out.